All-Ireland final in 2018. Watched it in Cook Park and I thought I was going to throw up. Like it just, it was a horrible feeling. You wanted to win, but you just felt like, oh my God, if, if they do win, they haven't been there. Like, is it worth it being over here? Subscribe to the OTBGAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, very welcome along. It's uh, Wednesday morning. We are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at half past seven. Uh, this is OTBAM. Shane is here. It is Thursday morning, folks. Don't listen to Jer. <laughs> nearly right. I had a day off. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I, I lost a day. You were nearly there. I mean, I did, only one day out. I, I didn't actually have a day off. I was working. I just wasn't working in this seat. Yes. In fairness, we did get into the elevator this morning, and Shane turned to me and went, what day of the week is it? I did. Ah, ah so you had uh, malice of forethought. Yeah, I don't do it on air. Prior I, warning. Yeah, I did my research this morning. Well, and, uh, as we've just established, Kathleen's yeah. also here. Kathleen, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Uh, I, you know, our sympathies are with you this morning as an Arsenal fan. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. There was 45 minutes there where I was like, oh, it's actually going to happen. And then City became City once more and it did not happen. So is this the brutal realisation that the team is short or is this the the uh, the dawning of a new era of hope? Which is uh, probably worse in its own way, but we'll get to that. So which of the which of the competing emotions are you feeling? Probably more of the latter, to be honest. Like I, I've always said all along that I thought this little stumble is coming. I don't think we have the depth that City has. I don't think Arsenal have the... I mean, you even look at the throw-up between Tommy Asu or Ben White, that alone kind of tells you that Arsenal don't have the sort of depth that they need to go toe-to-toe with City all the way. Uh, and I think last night showed that. So. I thought both Tommy Asu and Ben White were supposed to be the second coming of the Messiah, depending on what I was reading. At various stages of the last, of the last couple of years, uh, maybe the Ben White hype has died a little bit. But the Tommy Asu hype, no, is that? Uh, Sorry for him last. That's right, not choo 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 choo. He has like a couple of good performances, but then there are nights like last night where you just don't trust him on the ball. He's very up and down. He's not like he is when he has the ball. He's either going to perform a masterclass or he's going to do what he did last night and basically hand the ball to De Bruyne on a plate and be like score one of the nicest goals that I've seen in mm. Are we blaming Tommy Asu for that? I, I feel like he was okay after that I, I think one mistake does not make a bad player He scored immediately afterwards in fairness but I, I also like well, a keeper in a bit of no man's land I'm, I'm just not like I don't know and also He had a free header under, which he absolutely skied over the bar under a bit of pressure and like he no support He gave away support. a lot of bad balls He crossed Franchetti Franchettia probably should have scored could have, should have, would have. Can I just, uh, to puncture the hope, right? Um, remember the, the young Spurs team that, like, just fell short against Leicester, who, you know, turned out were full of superstars. But, like, oh, that's the start of something really special. They're going to go on and win something. They're, they're going to be there. Look, they've got Harry Kane and loads of other players who, uh, it turned out, were um, probably flattering to deceive somewhat. So the whole thing about, like, we're building for the future. Okay, you, you, you build for the future at your pace and then Newcastle signed five world-class players and the new Manchester United owners come in and they signed five world-class players and the new Spurs owners come in and they signed five world-class players and your little tiny window shut. No, this, this whole crack that last night was the... I was expecting them to wheel the trophy out the way everyone was talking last night. Oh, there you go. City have won the league. Even Pep was asked a question by Jonathan Pierce afterwards. He was like... Oh, yeah, the Arsenal fans looked like they were, they'd accepted that the, the title race was over and he was like well, well if they win their game in hand they're three points ahead of us so it's hardly over I don't, this, is, this is far from over No I don't think it's over at all I think uh, I'm 
less confident than I definitely was a couple of weeks ago, which is obvious by like the state of the table. I mean, we were eight points up at one stage, and now it's like very small margins. But I think, I think the way that City changed in the second half just shows the the class that they have and the ability that they have that when the pressure gets tough, they know what to do. I think Arsenal, not that they panicked a little bit, but they just didn't have the experience of being in those top under pressure sort of situations and knowing what to do and knowing how to adjust themselves and also not having the sort of experience and skill needed to take a few players off the bench, put them on to see out a game. Like if you had given me a 1-1 draw after before last night, happily would have taken mm. it. Not a bother going. The 3-1, I think, was probably a fair reflection of what City deserved after that second half. Like, Arsenal didn't have any chances, really, that were proper... There's the Enkedia ones. Enkedia should have had a hat-trick, yeah. realistically. Are we, are we forgetting that Arsenal have been the best team this season? And rarely does a team win a title without having a little blip? Yeah. Is this their blip? Yeah. Maybe it's their blip. Is it a blip, though? Like, three games in a row now where they've just been incapable of uh, getting the, the stuff that they need to get done done? Yeah, but if they beat Emery's Villa at the weekend, blip over, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, yeah, we're, we're back to... I think they need to be. do a bit more than just beat Villa at the weekend to say blip over. I think they need to go on a bit of a run again. I think that because it's been four games on the trot now where they haven't really performed, mm. they need to do something a bit more. I don't know. Everyone last night was getting carried away. So you still you still love yourself a bit of Arsenal, Shane? 100%. This season is not over for you. We're still Jesus. fighting for that title. So to, to even be saying this season is not over for Arsenal when if they win their game in hand they're three points ahead sounds ridiculous Colin wants us to address this it's a really young side they're probably two or three years ahead of schedule wouldn't finishing the top four be a massive achievement for Arsenal this season yeah, but not the way the season's gone I mean it, that's my whole point there's like, 15 games left Spurs blew the league when they had the chance against Leicester and they never got back there again it's like in this particular moment in time high up the pitch I mean they are pretty high up the pitch and you've just got to take this opportunity because you don't know when it's going to come again. Like, are, are Man City... So maybe Man City go away because of all the, the issues they have. And, and maybe, in the end, Arsenal win this title in the in the boardroom. I don't know. That is that is also a possibility. But mm. on the field, I, th- I thought that they, they let the emotion of the occasion get to them last night. They were giving it the big oh, one definitely. after yeah. everything. Everything was the big one. And Arteta, stupidly, rousing the beast with the oh look at me I'm going to take the ball away from Kevin De Bruyne I'm cool it's like uh 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 exactly what happened there was the whole team were like what are you doing to us mm. well that's the concern because City have been here before and he, he wasn't the boss so mm. they could push him over <laughs> it was not it was nothing to Kevin De Bruyne to push over a guy who was like the assistant you know the water carrier train he puts out the cones he is not the boss I am the boss I'm the European Football of the Year contender. I'm the most important player in this team. I thought that was interesting. The, the hardest moment for me was was actually De Bruyne when he was taken off and he was walking the, the full perimeter yeah. of the pitch and there's bottles and all sorts of torpedoes being slung at him and he's just looking up at the Arsenal fans with a smirk. He, like, just a smirk. He looks so smug. He was very like, smug. I, I hate to see bottles being thrown at a player and stuff, but just how smug he looked as he was walking <laughs> along. But rightfully so. so. Yeah, oh, 100%. yeah, of course. He had come and he had slayed and he was conquering and he was going home and he was there were doing it early. I can get my... I can get my... So... A lot, a lot of time for the performance of De Bruyne, and particularly pushing over Mikel Arteta, who was just getting in his way and being thick. Best player in Premier League history? Or sorry, is it, uh, since football started in 1992? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if we need to... Well, no, but, That's a big can of worms to open, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's a controversial can of worms. I think people saying De Bruyne is the best since 92 mm. in the league is hardly a... I mean, who's been better than him? 
um, pomegranate. Anyway, uh, I, I, I just, I, I thought that they let the like when, whenever, whenever the penalty was overturned, they were celebrating like it was a goal. Do you know, like, yeah. And here's, the, I don't know, maybe the thing is, but they it's have kind of been Arsenal stick all season. Like they have been doing that, and there has been this, and it's something that I've actually liked seeing from them a bit more because finally, it's like you're watching an Ireland team or an Arsenal team, and there's actually a bit of a bit of passion there, a bit of grit. Like last night was needly, and it was not the sort of needly where, well, maybe so the, more so the first half than the second half, where like. City knew they could get at Arsenal and they could put like a little bit of pressure on them, but there was also like a little bit of needle going the other way as well. And obviously, City came out the second half and performed better, mm. so they were able to take the psychological aspect through. Yes, but I also think that like with this Arsenal team, I I I know what you're saying about like okay, yes, the there is a lot of money coming into the league. I mean, Chelsea signing like ten players and spending seven hundred million or whatever it is. I didn't even mention that. Yeah, good point. <laughs> mm. But is it not? proof of like the concept of what Arteta has done in the yeah. fact that this has been happening well, this isn't a new thing in the league this has been happening consistently the Premier League outperforms every single other league in the world in spending and Arteta has managed to do what he did this season with not spending that sort of money I know. With, I, and like there's no there's nothing to say that if Arsenal however, now they're back in the Champions League there's nothing to say either that they won't go this summer and spend money or bring someone in they won't compete with the big guys no but well, when you look at where Arsenal have been the last few seasons yes it'll be a disappointment yes it'll be a failure not to win the league considering the position that they have but you also can't discount the general thing that they have competed incredibly well this season they have done incredibly well and it's I think it's unfair to say they're going to do a Spurs uh, well Spurs were in the Champions League on and off and reached the Champions League final in the aftermath of that over, or like the, or under the, the Pochettino era however they never got the opportunity to get over the line again I guess that's what it is mm. is what I'm saying if you have an 8 point lead in the league and you don't win the league then it has to be a disappointment and you have to begin to wonder about whether or not this squad is, is built to actually sustain the title challenge. And fair enough, I understand that they've come from absolutely nowhere to be in this position and so that is a clear sign of progress. And I'm not saying that there's not progress, I'm just saying that they, they could easily re- look back in years to come and go, that was our one window where it, it was Jimmy to open because Liverpool were off it, Manchester United had just got their good manager who is coming and is signing and attracting world-class players and will also be in the Champions League next season. The Newcastle revolution hadn't fully started. The Chelsea revolution was just beginning and we had this window where Man City were a little bit put off by what was happening off the pitch for various reasons, like they, one of their players was subject to a massive court case that I'm sure is a, a, a talking point in the dressing room. Pep had signed his new deal but was going a bit mad in, to the point where he was apologising afterwards in the press conferences and we had an eight-point lead but we couldn't get over the line because we were too young. I mean, I don't know if I'm buying that. They signed really well in the window. Um, but I don't think anyone this season has really thought Arsenal had the depth. Like, that's the one thing that people have consistently said when they get to this stage of the season, that will be the true test if they can hold that lead because they don't have depth. But Sorry, two, uh, two things as well on Arsenal. So the, uh, the notion of them being too hyped or too over-celebrating, like Emery Chan cleared uh, an unbelievable block for Dortmund against Chelsea last night off the line and they, there was fist bumps all around, there was chest bumps, but because they went on to win the game, it was celebrated as a, you know, the team were up for this. I think the occasion got them. I think the, like, the result dictates the result whether I well, think they were over the top. I think what, what you're talking about is flat-track bullies where, you know, we're celebrating every single moment of every game. But when somebody else actually puts it up to us, mm. when our manager gets pushed over on the sideline, we quailed in the moment. 
That's this, what happened last night. This is an Arsenal without Jesus or Partey. Whatever. Arguably two best players. Whatever, whatever. The, the season happens, the games happen, you yeah. pick the team who are available. They'd sign Jorginho, who was a Champions League winner, who was in the team last night. You know, so, I mean, his, his career... Okay, party's obviously much more important to him, but you can't say that that's nothing, right? I I just think that like whatever. No, I agree with you. I, like I do think the the atmosphere and the moment got to them completely, and I think that that sort of hype train that they have given themselves all season that has worked quite well for them didn't work for them last night, and probably did work against them in the long term. But I just uh, that's a, that's what I mean when I say that, that they. So you're not too disappointed. Uh, in the moment, yeah, of course. Like you don't want to lose three one to City. I, I, I'm disappointed in the manner that it happened. Like I felt it, Arsenal gifted them a lot of the goals. Like City passing was brilliant. Arsenal's was horrendous in the second half. There were so many mislaid passes. City easily could have taken advantage a lot sooner, and probably shows where City are at the stage that they didn't, and it took them so long. Uh, uh, I think. I think that I mean, we were obviously talking about Arsenal here, but I think that point about City is like not playing well and then coming out and absolutely smashing the yeah. best team in the league in the second half is something that we probably need to give them a bit more credit for like Jack Grealish I thought was sensational in, mm. like on the edge of his own box with control and you know we'll talk about the tactical stuff in a moment so are we being too hard here and that actually you know, so City, talking against myself we're here, talking like City are, are this infallible team they've, they've dropped points in seven games this season in the league I know they, but they, they are a team who's had a hundred point season yeah but that's not this team that, that is no, far from this team in fact no they've like, added Erling Haaland in the meantime no they have added Erling Haaland but that brings with it that brings with the complications as well you know sorry we've, missed, we've buried the lead here about, um, <laughs> about Colm and he's like oh Erling Haaland picked the wrong club thing I literally as soon as the third goal went in last night my Twitter was like oh did he pick the wrong club they weren't actually no, they weren't talking to just Colin but it was that general view that had gone out there so I, I noticed Colin put you out today as opposed to himself for spending mm. his um, I did his tepid it, take to, to, to give Colin his, his dues I did actually volunteer so I volunteered as tribute for the morning yeah. <laughs> well ha- Hallan's interview afterwards was just the I mean the he t- really bugged me last night he really <laughs> yeah. bugged me he is so Dirty, like he was. Oh, I think he should have been sent off. Hanging out at Tommy Asu at different times, like and so the when they went back for the VAR for the penalty review, he was the one dragging them down. Like, it, the, yes, I think that's a fair need, point. You need though, that's a striker. You, you do need that, but it's definitely not a penalty in that instance. No, what, what do you mean like, he should have been sent off? I don't think he should have been sent off for the elbow to the head. Bit of physicality. No, you got to you got to get the elbow to the head. You can't be doing that stuff. Like See, he, he wasn't yellow carded at all. Was with, he? with all due respect, doing his job. The, um, uh, whoever was on co-coms like, oh Gary Breen who's a brilliant co-commentator by the yeah. way like definitely uh, catapulted into my top three co-coms was like oh the defender bends down I'm like I don't know about that Gary the bit where the, like the giant looks over and fixes his no. stare and goes that's exactly where my elbow is going like there's like malice of forethought there 100% he's looking over and he's going Pff. he got the two of them as well because he had the elbow this way and he was pushing that way he's, he didn't get a yellow card as well he's a genius he's a big man. he was laughing his head off Yeah, he was laughing his head off at it like they're not going to do anything to me I'm running Holland well he was asked about it afterwards he, like he's on to, as Colm said this morning he's, he's on 26 goals for the season which levels Aguero's record for City in the Premier League season just the 15 games to beat it and uh, as he said himself after the game I think he was asked oh, you, you were three, ga- three games without a goal before today and he said well now I'm 20 minutes without a goal that's the way he thinks like full time Wesley he's 20 minutes without a goal so he's, uh, he's conscious of that he's, uh, he's an animal He's, oh, he's like different. if he was playing for Arsenal, it'd be great. But just like last night was... Pro- a lot of the time I've watched him and I've actually just enjoyed watching him, whereas last night I just thought he was really dirty and did not enjoy it And sorry, uh, the, the, the penalty should have resulted in a second yellow. 
Mm-hmm. Like if it's if it's a penalty, it's a foul, and if it's a foul, it's a yellow card. For Edgerson, yeah, mm. it's it's it's. But as Mark Halsey says in the paper today, it's careless, not reckless. So it's not it's not a yellow. Like as in, it wouldn't necessarily be a yellow at the pitch. It'd and be a free. With respect, is that like a rule or is that like a, I've made this up because I'm Mark Halsey well, and that, I'm writing well, in the paper? A, he's a former Premier League referee, but but I, I would I would assume that you can put something down as careless and not give a caution for it. Right, I mean, I, I it's all about the language these days. When you're writing in the referee's report, all right. I don't know. We're going to get into that a little bit later on as well. Uh, OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today. Here's what's coming up between now and ten o'clock. Desmond Babbitt standing by. We're going to talk to her in just a second. Graham Hunter at five past eight. Charlotte Burns is running for GA president. He's going to join us in studio at twenty-five past eight. James Tracy makes his off-the-wall debut this morning to give us the depth chart. An interesting depth chart from uh, an Irish hooker perspective. Uh, he's played with all of them. Uh, Sue Ronan's going to do You Had to Be There at five past nine. And Noz Chowdhury at uh, half past nine will play out with. But at 7.46, I'm delighted to say, Jasmine Baba is with us to analyse last night's game. Uh, we didn't realise when we booked you, Jasmine, that you're actually an Arsenal fan, I think. Yes, I unfortunately am. Well, we are surrounded by uh, sorry Arsenal fans this morning. Sad ones, indeed. Um, what, what, when you were watching the game, how hopeful did you get? Uh, I think I'm a lot more realistic than the average fan and some people may say that I'm pessimistic because I have that realistic view but you have to realise Man City are uh, champions of the English Premier League so many times, have so much world-class quality Um, even when we made it back to 1-1 I was still very, very... um, anxious for the game to be over in that way obviously we lost 3-1 and um the way it panned out the way it went down is something I didn't really expect um not the result but the way both teams played um I didn't think that the way it would come about would be in the way it did um especially how Slightly, I think toothless is a bit too harsh, but it did feel a little bit like that for Arsenal in front of goal. And the, uh, the problem is it's been two games, prior games to this game, where Arsenal have looked like that, which is a bit worrying for me. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, maybe we'll start with the City side of things because... Um... City had picked a team against Villa at the weekend that people were like, well, this is very interesting. Is this showing disrespect to Villa? Is it just trying to overwhelm them to try and get the club back on the right track after all of the stuff that had happened, including uh, Pep bodying Steven Gerrard randomly in a press conference out of nowhere and then having to apologise for it afterwards, which was just an interesting little wrinkle to the whole thing. But then he picks largely the same team or certainly the same shape of a team in the biggest game of the season. So he was obviously trying stuff out. Uh, Did it work? against Arsenal in that first half, having Bernardo Silva in the position he was in? Uh, no, I, that was actually Man City's biggest weakness. Um, he Bernardo Silva couldn't completely defend Bukayo Saka. We know Bukayo Saka is talented, technical, can get around his man pretty fast through dribbles and pretty go- good in those one-to-ones. And um, the way Pep Guardiola put him in that position and had to deal with especially those 1v1s, definitely um, made City vulnerable. Um, And I think that's particularly where the game was won in the second half. Um, The change for um, 
Mara's coming off for Kanji, Kanji going to centre back, Ake to left back, and Bernardo Silva to push up higher on the wing was definitely the experience and stability that City needed to take over that game because yeah, Bukayo Saka was definitely um being quite troublesome for Bernardo Silva, especially in that first half. And that's where most of Arsenal's chances or semi-chances came from. I feel though, Jasmine, like Pep Guardiola has almost been the architect of his own downfall when it comes to that left-back position because you look at Cancelo going to, to Bayern Munich, you, you you even look to Zinchenko last night as well in the Arsenal team and you think he had options there and, and he's got rid of them. So really, Bernardo Silva left-back, you say it didn't work and it didn't work, but um, really Pep has only himself to blame. Yeah, I mean, I don't really understand. I think for everyone, especially the Cancelo move to Bayern Munich, shocked a lot of people. It came out of nowhere. We know Cancelo was not getting minutes, and you could see the frustration on why Cancelo wouldn't get minutes when a decision like last night came about um, instead of just playing Cancelo. There's been other moments in the season where he should have probably been getting more minutes and especially compared to last season where he was basically a starter it it didn't make much sense um to sell both Zinchenko and Gabriel Jesus to Arsenal um as well is quite baffling um obviously they won last night so I'm not going to delve too much of if it was the right decision or not but it definitely has made Arsenal stronger and definitely given them the depth that they could have used. Um, the reason why Bernardo Silva gets used in that left back is because Guardiola kind of sees um, players' technical abilities to put them in certain roles rather than positions. So he likes, um, he's done it before with Bernardo Silva with the inverted kind of wing back because you come into the middle of the pitch more and he has more qualities to come into the pitch and start playing but last night if you're having to def- also defend someone like Bukayo Saka um, yeah that can be quite a difficult task and had that failed that definitely would have been on Pep Guardiola's decision making on that night. Yeah, because, uh, you know, Bakaya Saka, he's, he's pretty famous. Everybody kind of knows the athletic profile, the talent that he's capable of. It, it doesn't feel like it's a good matchup. So uh, it's um, it's a high-wire act that Pep was engaged in last night. And eventually he does make the change. As soon as he makes the change, is there an impact? Um, yes, it completely stabilises the team on how they could play out um, and how quickly they could progress the ball. It's not... Quite often that we get to say Man City had less of the ball and had as many chances, more high quality chances than Arsenal. Um, and the way they kind of dictated that kind of pace and level of technical ability was, um, quite frightening after they made that change. They looked a lot more stabilized, a lot more comfortable, even when they didn't have the ball. And that's quite terrifying. You don't want to give that Man City team, you don't want to give Pep Guardiola that sort of confidence. Um, And it's quite telling that despite all these changes, despite all these um, tactical going-ons on the match last night, a lot of those goals were decided by errors and um, individual decision-making in that certain point of play. And that kind of stability that Man City had pushed Arsenal into these mistakes. Um, And that's probably the biggest 
biggest aspect of last night and how that change can make a whole impact all over the pitch. Because if they're able to suddenly push Arsenal into these um, chaotic areas where they can't make the right decisions or they delay making a decision and they win the ball off them or, you know, just possess them in some sort of way and they're allowed to progress that quickly, you see what we saw last night. It wasn't the best kind of made-up goals that came from City. It came from errors. And even... The goal City conceded, the penalty they conceded was an error on the day. Uh, this three-two-two-three formation, uh, Jasmine, that, that uh, Pep uh, plays in possession, you look at some of the players last night who were brilliant, unexpe- uh, expectedly brilliant. You look at Haaland, you look at De Bruyne, uh, Ruben Diaz at the back was excellent as well. And I'm thinking about someone on the bench like Phil Foden. All the talk around the World Cup was, why isn't Phil Foden in the England team? And now, this far out from the World Cup, we're thinking, why, why can't he get into this Manchester City team? Is it a formation thing? Like, like, I mean, he seems to be at the prime part of his career. He's 22 years of age, and yet can't get a sniff at the minute for City in a starting team. Oh, you've lost Jasmine there. It's frozen. Yeah, it's frozen. We'll get, we'll get that back. It is really interesting, isn't it? Um, it's also interesting that uh, as soon as he scores, Grealish is hiked off. It's like, oh. punishment substituted. Well, it's like... Uh, and he almost takes off his jersey as well. He was already on a yellow. And he was like, he thought about taking off his shirt for like half a second. I don't know how he had the presence of mind to like, no, if I'm going to get sent off here. It was his most complete performance. Um, and I thought he was excellent. You see, there's a difference in, in Jack Grealish at, at Villa and at City. The work rate, he probably has to work harder at City. I think the work rate at Villa was, it was really intense. Yeah, it was it, good. It was, it was, so look, John McGinn was obviously sensational whenever um, he was there as well. And anytime you forget to mention John McGinn, the Villa fans, oh, ah. but he like the, he was getting the ball all the time yeah, and expected yeah. to, to do stuff. It's, it's a little bit like Bruno when there was no manager at United mm. he was expected to do everything and people were like well what is it? and now there's a manager there you're like oh this is in a structured environment it's pretty good a bit um, of organisation helps um, I don't know like even Pep's um, Pep's interview after the match last night he was, he was asked about the, the change the Akanji change and he said uh, was that the moment at which you started playing better and he was like oh no 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 we, we started playing better before that and it, but it wasn't that was the turning point and Bernardo Silva just wasn't working he's not going to admit anything is he? no of course his attitude even the press conference or the, the post-match interview I'm just like this man has an air of, and even Laro said it on the show last night with Joe. It's like just, when he walks into a press conference, there's an air of I'm the smartest man in the room, and that's just what you get with Pep Guardiola. Yeah, and look, here's the thing: maybe this uh, Bernardo Silva left wing back is setting up something later on in the year, and maybe it's like we have to win because if they win the league this year, they don't really care. I mean, it, it's yeah. important, but like they've got to win the Champions League. They've signed the best striker in world football. They've added it to a team that's won five out of the last six Premier League. It's like this. These games obviously really matter because it reasserts the big dog. Mm. We are the big dog. You are not the big dog. <laughs> you might think you're the big dog. You're behaving like it, but you ain't. We are. Yeah. Well, last night, last night's result was only essentially if you're if you're talking about Arsenal being too up for this game, it's because they've not, never been in this position before. Well, it's not. I, it's not that they were too up for it because you, you, you know whatever whatever. I'd love to see a good sports psychologists explain exactly here, 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 and here. They're letting the situation get to them as opposed to. You know they're not rising to the occasion; mm. they're becoming overwhelmed a bit by the occasion. Is what it felt like looking at it, and uh, Arteta didn't help. I didn't think, but anyway, you were asking a question. Yeah, sorry, Jasmine. I just asked about Phil Foden. Um, I, I, like, essentially, how can he get into this city team, and is it formation based? I don't believe it's formation based. I think it's more it's tactical approach. I think Foden is 
so talented, so um, technical. And I think last night he was more based for, um, I think Man City probably game plan was they expected not to have the ball that much or gave Arsenal the ball. And Foden wouldn't have um, flourished as much as he would have last night. And I expect him, I think they're also taking it a little easier on him because he's still very young. Um especially with the Champions League run coming up. They want him fresh and ready for that because he does offer something completely different to Grealish Mahrez. I think Grealish Mahrez are a little bit more faster than him, um, a little bit more direct. And I think last night especially, and a few of their um, past few games, they've needed more of that more than they've needed of of Foden. And because Grealish and Mahrez are more towards peak age, so between 25 and 29 towards that kind of level, they're more consistent in their performances. And that's why at times they give Foden a little bit of a a breather. And we also don't know how exactly he performs in training. So Mm. that could be something else. He might not have looked as sharp as the others in training and that might have gone towards his decision of him not playing. How did Arsenal play? From a a tactical perspective, uh, you know, they they had opportunities, they created chances, they missed those chances. And, um, you know, I'm definitely... In, I'm looking at the result and I'm looking at the emotions but from a technical and tactical perspective and from an analytical perspective Jasmine how did Arsenal play last night? To be fair they didn't play that badly we've seen them in top six games and they've performed a lot better and one of the best teams in the Premier League against the other top six teams um, compared to anyone else so I don't think they played that badly they were very stable um, not very risk averse. And I think it's more telling about their last three games rather than this single one in particular. Um, and it's the fact that they are missing a link up striker, someone with a bit more box presence, possibly. And when they have more of the ball, um, because Inketia is more suited to, um, running from deep, and um, just more direct play, he hasn't been able to establish himself when Arsenal have more of the ball. He doesn't link up with Martinelli on the left as well. And we're seeing that a lot uh, lot of the times Martinelli gets subbed off rather than a changing uh, with Ninketia. So you get a lot of these games where they have quite a few goal attempts, but they're either not put on target or they're not big cha- bigger chances to begin with. So, for instance, last night they had 10 shots, but only one on goal. Expected value in total was 1.5. That's about average expected goals for goal, um, goal chance. But the fact that the only shot on target was the penalty is really, really uh bad it's a really bad performance and it was like this against Everton as well where they had a high um a high percentage of uh goal attempts but none on target or less on target sorry and that can point to as I said a couple of things either the players aren't getting into the space for bigger chances but their xg is kind of normal so it's not so much that but more that the quality that they're lacking um, 
the quality and the ages you need to perform at a high level consistently is lacking. So as well as Nketiah has done with Gabriel Jesus being out, I think he's a bit like Martinelli in in terms of style of play, that you need something different. You need a Gabriel Jesus because their link-up play is worse and you're not getting into these spaces to get goals on target, to have big chances. And now they've only scored two goals in their last three games. So it's just kind of suffering against Brentford as well. You're expected, even though we've had the whole VAR controversy, you're expected to score more than one goal against Brentford. And that is the part that I don't think Arsenal really thought about. And I feel like if they had more of a box present striker, someone who can goal hang in the box, who can create space for others and as well as themselves, um, and someone who can link up play and lay off passes for his teammates, they would be in a better position. But they don't have that. They have Nketiah. So what they can do is kind of play how they did against Manchester uh, United, despite them having um, more possession than the other team. More of their attacks were kind of not counter-attack focused, but based more on faster transitions, which Eddie Nketiah excels at, but they don't really, they didn't really play with that last night and instead got stuck and their way of playing and their, they actually took a risk in the way that they wanted to break through City's lines, um, which got them stuck every now and then. Okay. Um, but that is why Nketiah um, has not excelled as much as he should be as in a replacement and as currently the only single lone striker there. All right, Jasmine, great to have you with us this morning. Thanks so much for joining Thank us. You Cheers. So much. So Jasmine Baba there giving us some uh, analytical insight into what happened on the field last night. Yeah, I, like I, I just I'm fascinated to see how this the season like now we're going to be focused on this April clash at the Etihad. Like so much is going to come down to that, isn't it? I don't know. It's very far away. Arsenal need a. Recovery. You think City could be in yeah, the distance? I, I do. Yeah. Think City are cranking it up, and something like last night is really inspiring for them, where they're like, you know, it, it was it was a weird season up to this point. A lot of those players have been away at the World Cup. They're emotionally drained after that. They're not that tuned in. Suddenly, the the club's future is hanging in the balance, and they're like, I mean, is this is this all going to disappear? But Arteta and Dinchenko and players, they uh, something they recognise a yeah. situation. How do they respond to that? Brilliantly, absolutely brilliantly. Like with their best performance of the season so far, even without the ball, they're like, this is this is unusual. Let's see what happens. I don't know. I think that... Um, is Pep not going to have an eye in the Champions League now? Is there not an element of, oh, well, he wants to win it so badly that he might get a li- little bit distracted by it? Like, challenging on two fronts is not... Like, how many teams win a Champions League and a, and a Premier League? Not many. Those are those are dynasty teams. Yeah. City are, City are built to do it, though. I don't know. I, like, I'm not convinced that this, this title is over at all last night. I was just waiting for the red carpet to be... Wheeled out last night. Yeah. Well, People are getting coming. obsessed with this. Five minutes past eight this morning here on OTB AM. We're brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Um, Nikhil says Man City took us to the cleaners in the second half. Fair play. Defensive mistakes are part of the game. Need to learn and move on from this defeat. Come on, you gunners. Mm. Um, thanks for that, Nikhil. Graham Hunter is with us. Graham, good morning to you. How are you? That's good. Thanks. Uh, when Casemiro signed for Manchester United you said 
this is a decision that I think is going to cost Real Madrid the title. And here we are six months in and we can definitely wheel out the red carpet for, Bar- for Barcelona. That, that La Liga title race is, is done, right? Toast. Uh, no. Uh, anybody who's, who's lived and breathed uh, Real Madrid, in my case, 20 years in this country, 21 years in this country, and for a long time prior to that, knows that uh, Madrid are capable of cutting back what is now an eight-point gap. Yeah, it's very different. It looks more lopsided than the title race you've just been discussing in England, which is fascinating, and it's tight, and it, as Shane said, it's definitely not over, although I'm feeling just a just a smidgen of smugness because with my sponsors, two weeks ago, I said, listen, I still think City will win this title. I still do today. If It definitely wasn't over because of the result at, uh, in London last night, but... Barcelona are playing um, in in a manner which is uh, really, really feisty. It's completely different from not just the execution, but even the ideology of how Xavi, uh, the team Xavi played in, wanted to behave, either in their first treble year with Guardiola or subsequently under Luis Enrique when the game uh, was was more vertical, was quicker. They had two forwards up front, uh, Suarez, Neymar, Messi. Now they always get the ball to them quickly. <laughs> compared to how Pepe played. But this team, again, is is very, very different indeed. Lots and lots of 1-0s. There's absolutely nothing that suggests that Barcelona are invulnerable between now and the end of the season. Not even the only seven goals conceded so far. And Real Madrid have been, have been patchy. And they have, for as, for as much as Camavinga pivoted last night, was is, 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 a, is a special footballer, is a good athlete, He's very, very young. Chalmany at Pivotti is, again, extremely impressive physically, has got a good temperament, but neither of them are Casemiro. I don't know if you two or your uh, viewers, listeners, now agree with me. The kiss, my point was Casemiro is super special. There was absolutely no way Madrid were not going to notice him being absent. There was absolutely no way, this again was my point with you, that, that, that Modric and Cross aged... 33 and 38 weren't going to suffer for the lack of Casemiro and they have so uh, I think the impact has been significant title's not over yet I simply don't believe that Real Madrid are incapable of cutting the gap and therefore I believe there's a lot of excitement to come uh, between now and June and a lot of finger pointing because this is Spain well great I'm looking forward to it I think the other thing that um, I'm being obviously mildly facetious saying it was over that Real Madrid have been distracted by the fact that there was a World Club Championship to take care of and we, we expect the European champions to uh, to win the World Club Cup so that brings added pressure where you actually just have to go and do it I, I think um, for anybody who, who didn't watch it uh, they went to uh, Morocco. Um, they subsequently beat Al-Hilal in the final. They qualified for the final very easily. In the final, it was 5-3. Um, Al-Hilal had uh, a playing style which was wandering around and attempting to play clever football at low pace. That gave ball players in Madrid's team tons of time uh, to pick up Vinicius and Benzema and Valverde. They could have scored another five if they wanted to, but they conceded three world champions. The, the buzz I got, and I was on television, La Liga television before last night, um, uh, in the build-up to Real Madrid beating Elche uh, 4-0. And I said, listen, the, the buzz from Morocco is that they love being in the sunshine. It wasn't roasting hot, but it was better than winter in Madrid. It was like a mini training camp. They found the games easy, and they became world champions. I know you didn't say it, Ger, but I know that um, in Britain and Ireland growing up, this idea about becoming world club champions 
has never been given a, a huge value. But I, I always felt a little bit differently, and I beg you to listen to the idea that a player like um, Benzema, Vinicius or Modric, or Asensio or Ceballos, puts a medal around the neck, which is your world champion. You get a badge on your shirt from now for a year that says you're champion of the world as a club. For, for a guy like Benzema, who felt treated like flotsam and jetsam by Deschamps and the French Federation in Qatar and didn't go back when he was fit to play in the World Cup final. For a guy like Camavinga, who did play in the World Cup final and lost it, the, the, the fact you can say I'm a world champion, right? it, 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 if, if viewers want to say, I don't value it that much, that's fine. It's a personal opinion. I can assure you that the players absolutely do value it above the Champions League. Shane was talking about dynasty teams. No. But you're world champion. You lift the trophy. It really counted. And therefore, they've come back. Uh, it's been like an injection of vitamin D. It's been it's been really important to them. They enjoyed being away from the, the furore that surrounded Mallorca fouling them 29 times, Vinicius being abused racially game after game. All that fuss. They were to put it on a shelf, go off to Morocco, beat two teams easily, come back with a trophy and a medal, and say, yeah, okay, this is a boost towards cutting back the lead on Barcelona, winning the cup. It's it's where it's a classical semi-final. I I said it last night. I say it again. They should be playing. Maybe I'm so. Maybe people don't remember the theme to Jaws. Oh yeah. But that yeah. that double bass creeping menace of somebody swimming and there's something that is it's coming. That play play the Jaws theme over Real Madrid's games for the rest of the season because that's what it needs. That's uh, given the Liverpool fans this morning just a shiver down their spine. Going, I thought, I, I thought it was all was well in the world again. And then Graham starts to wheel out the jaws. Like, oh, great. Terrifying. One, one distraction that isn't going away, and I don't know if it's just because it, it gets asked in a press conference and, and then it becomes news, is the Brazil job and Carlo Ancelotti. And he's like, typical phlegmatic Carlo. Eh, I don't know. I haven't heard anything. It's not, you know, it's not like, no way. It's like, oh, could be interesting. Could be interesting. What's going on? Yeah, they, they want him. Um, I don't think there's any question about that at all. They tried very hard for Pep Guardiola uh, just around the time that Tichy was, was being removed. Um, they thought they had Guardiola. Um, it didn't work out, but they genuinely thought they had. Ronaldo Nassario was hopping from foot to foot in the days after Tichy left, saying, we've got a coach who's coming who's football I love, and then it didn't happen. Um, you can wholly understand that if they're going foreign for what I think is the first time the Carlo Ancelotti's ability to handle um, important players brilliantly is one of the things that you need if you're a Brazil coach you usually need a Brazilian passport I think I think there's a difficulty the fact that some of them were he to take over are players that he knows and, and who, who love and respect him could make a difference he has a contract one of the things he keeps saying is I have a contract on 2024. I want to see it out. The difference is Brazil are waiting. Um, it's, what would you two say? Is it the, is it the plum job in, in international football? Maybe. Um, is it one where if you take over and you, you value your own qualities as a communicator, a manager and a coach, you think you could win the Copa America, take it back off Messi's Argentina, go to the States and Canada and Mexico and win the World Cup? I, I think if you're a self-respecting coach, you think, yes, I think it's a plum job. With no mind pressure or difficulties, it's a plum job. Why is it not being filled? Um, I don't think he's alone on the list. I think Luis Enrique is a candidate. 
I'm not well enough versed to say about Brazilian club football. There's an obvious, there's a muster point there. But the CBF don't think there is a muster point. Um, if you're saying, Jared, which you hinted at, that you think it, it might take Ancelotti's eye off the ball, I'd like to uh, respond with a certain firmness <laughs> and, and say no. Uh, but at, at Madrid, although he's got a contract until the end of next season, if, for example, your proposition is right that La Liga's over and Real Madrid don't close an eight-point gap and lose it by a big margin, fail to defend it and go out to Liverpool, I don't think Ancelotti's contract will be fulfilled. So is that why the CBF are jockeying? Are they waiting to see what whether the bus want to do them a favour? Don't know. And you talked about distractions. There's something that's more than a distraction because this morning's Madrid papers have the front page and in Marcus' case, six or seven pages dedicated to the revelation from the tax authorities that they have, by investigation, uncovered um, a, a firm which is run by an ex-referee and his son who have been paid um, about 1.5 million euros during 2016, 17, uh, 2016, 17 and 18 uh, to give Barcelona advice on referees. Oof. And uh, uh, that's all fine because Madrid in 2009 publicly hired an ex-referee, um, Megia Davila, and, and said he's there to, to make sure the players know the law and to have good relationships with the referees. And they put him they put him on the staff. They put him um, in, in a very high position, uh, but he was an ex-referee. The really big difficulty here is that Negreira, the man whose company this is, that they've been uh, uncovered as having paid 1.5 million euros to, was a vice president of the Committee of Referees. The committee of referees are saying, well, he had absolutely no voice in the appointment of referees and his position was ceremonial. Oh, she was. Then what's being asked, I think, by those journalists who are not rabid, because um, the, the two Catalan papers guys gave this about 300 words each. The two Madrid papers splashed it <laughs> front page. The, the allegations at the moment is that these, these payments were discovered during an investigation and hadn't been declared for tax. So I can't prove that. I can report the allegations. And therefore, it looks like an overripe barrels, barrel of fish. It stinks. The, the crazy thing, Graham, when you, when you say that is, uh, and for football fans generally, I think this is the worrying thing, that's a huge story. And yet, none of us are shocked. Um, the same with the Qataris coming in to potentially buy Manchester United. And the story I wanted to ask you about as well, the Manchester City financial allegations. I mean, there's so much, there's so many dark clouds over football at the moment that these stories almost just water off a duck's back for football fans. Yeah, Shane. Even that, even how you've said it is 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 chilling. Um, I, I would add that I don't believe that football fans or journalists believe that every uh, body which is there to either assess, check, uh, investigate or punish is necessarily powerful enough or willful enough to make sure that the laws are, are absolutely adhered to. I, I don't believe... It's this, I, I like the way you've drawn a comparison because I think that um, it's, it's that expression about, you know, when you're in a certain position, you don't need simply to be honest, you need to be seen to be honest. It needs to be patently clear, it, it, rather than saying, don't worry, everything's fine, we're doing it. 
It needs to be patently clear. And in certain instances, it's not patently clear. And in the, in the case of City, um, you, you didn't bend away from this, but I think in, in every case, decent reporters must presume innocent until proven guilty. However, now, and I speak for myself, I'm not, I have not dedicated the last 20 years to investigative reporting of, of a financial kind. And there are some who, in our uh, trade, who have become exceptional. Difficult and dangerous uh, times filled with suspicion do sometimes breed exceptional men and women who dedicate themselves to unraveling these things. I would say that it, you put your your voices in the, the, the man or woman of the people who, who who's a football fan or who's, a, who's passionate about football and wants to believe. It's become so complex, particularly in the case of City, so complex. That I would challenge many people to actually properly understand it and be able to follow with certainty uh, the reporting of how the breaches are, where the where the money that comes into Manchester City does or doesn't come from, whether they have or haven't breached FFP. There'll finally be a report. It'll be handled by experts. But I go back to your point about whether there is currently a total belief that there is the ability and then the will to prosecute anybody of a massive club or a, a massive football uh, governing body that has committed some sort of infraction. Uh, that's... That there are everybody. Brian Glanville, the Sunday Times journalist, made his fame in the sixties by being an English-based journalist who, in, who investigated and proved uh, corruption in Italian football in the sixties. Prior to that, I, I wouldn't have knowledge. But back in the in the decade when I was born, there was corruption, there was malpractice, and there were determined attempts by journalists to, to unravel it. From that day until this, saying. I don't think there's any one of us who thinks that malpractice and cheating uh, went away. What I would contend, my opinion, you asked me, is one, I think it's become increasingly difficult to understand it and prove it. And I think there is a, a broad feeling that there may not be either the will or the power from governing bodies to say, we will take you on once we've proven it, we will impose all the sanctions within our power. And I think that's almost as insidious as the point you made. Yeah, no, it totally is because um, it, it frames the terms of reference for everybody and then, sure, look, we know what happens when uh, opportunity presents itself. I want to come away from that for a moment because, you know, notwithstanding uh, all of that backdrop, the football this evening at Camp Nou, 5.45 our time, it's Barcelona against Manchester United. It's a storied fixture. Um, I see uh, the... Younger Cruyff in all the papers today, talking about his time at both clubs and how going to Manchester United was a release and a relief for him. Um, so, like, I'm really looking forward to this, particularly because Ten Hag has brought something to Manchester United which is like kind of joyous. A little bit of structure has released the joy from so many of his players. Um, and if if uh, there's a spikiness tonight to Barcelona, then we this is actually setting up quite nicely. So it's just a smashing tie, and it's typical of football that it can broadly it can shoot itself in the foot. And Manchester United against Barcelona is the is the last thing we talk about because while it's not the Champions League, it's a Champions League worth worthy tie. Um, both sides are extremely interesting. Both sides are on the up. 
Um, United's playing style is now recognisable under Ten Hag to what many United fans would want them to be playing like, you know, incomplete yet, and missing a really important player in Ericsson. McTominay might have started. Uh, Barcelona's style is not so recognisable. It's extremely vertical. They're kicking the ball long domestically for five foot eight Gabby to challenge aerially for the ball against Raul Albiol or against Militao. It, it, it's phenomenal. Yet this five foot eight, 19 year old is in the top 10 midfielders for winning aerial challenges in La Liga. And in La Liga would have 120, 130 regular midfield midfielders across all the teams each week. And and little nineteen year old five foot eight Gavi, isn't it? So if Barcelona, and you both remember um, Shane, I didn't know you at the time, but I know you were following football. Joe, I was talking to you when Guardiola's side was not only conquering Europe but wooing the world, seducing the world in its football. If a goalkeeper, Victor Valdez, had kicked the ball from a bike, a place kick long, he'd have been sacked. There's <laughs> taken. Is now against uh, domestic rivals, lumping the ball long for Barcelona to, to compete for, and then pounce on in a brilliant way to win second or third balls in the midfield. It's it's genuine and it's working. Now against Manchester United, one of the the fascinating points for me tactically is I, I, after they beat Villarreal um, in the Madrigal on the weekend one 0 clinging on a little bit, Xavi said to our reporter in English, "Yeah, listen, we're." We're at the best moment since I took over, which was November the previous year. Um, we're almost perfect in defence and intensity and pressing, which is true. Now we have to change our mindset. So wait, 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 wait. So he said, we're perfect in this, we're in the best moment, we have to change our mindset for United and the Europa League. He's not explained yet what he meant by that, but I take it that it probably means that their tactics should be to try and use the ball a little bit more in the old Chavi style, which is not how he's coaching his team at the moment. And it's working. I'm not being critical. It's just, it's remarkable to watch. Ten Hag is giving United a little bit what they used to have. Ten Hag is giving United what, what they bought him from Ajax to bring. It all fits. It dovetails. It seems natural. Chavi is doing something really quite remarkable at the moment. And we've got a tie, like you said, of all the echoes of United in 99 at the camp now without Barcelona, but having come through that group that had Barcelona and Xavi's debut at Old Trafford in the 3-3 and then starting in the 3-3 at camp now, there's echoes of that. There's echoes of 2009, 2011, the 4-0 that Barcelona imposed, Romario's Barcelona imposed, it's all there, but United could win both games. It's perfectly feasible. You know they could. Yeah. We're looking forward to it. Graham, great stuff. Thanks a million for joining us. You've suitably wet the appetite. <laughs> Cheers. Enjoy it. Cheers, lad. So Graham Hunter there giving us some thoughts ahead of that game tonight. Now, during the break, the Koi Gig Pod, uh, you're going to hear Emma Byrne talking to Kathleen about Aoife Mannion. Koi Gig Pod on OTB is in association with Cadbury FC, official snack partner to the Republic of Ireland women's national team. We're back with Jarlath Burns talking about his campaign to become the new GAA president next. You're listening to OTB AM. Right, I'm delighted to say Jarlath Burns is with us in the studio to talk to us about his run to become the next GAA president. Um, it, it's a, is it electronic voting? Is it as brutal as that? So it's like a numbers, there's no, there's no tally man, there's no hours and hours to make 
do or, or to no, come there's, to terms? There's, there's tally men. The tally men are the provincial secretaries. Right. Uh, but everybody just votes on paper. Right. Okay, so it is One, paper. One, two, three, it is. Yeah, okay, yeah. great. So there's at least a little bit of a moment where you get to find out whether or not you've been successful or not. Because the last time, again, I, I was just saying off air there, I was listening to your interview on the GA Social with the lads. Um, the the first count, you were ahead. The second count, you were uh, level. And the, yeah, on yeah. the third count... You didn't, right, yeah. you didn't get it. That was one of the most agonising hours of my life because what happened was they did the first count and then they said, we're going to have a few motions now. So they went through two or three motions and uh, I was just sitting there, you know, my, my world is swirling around me wondering and while all of this was going on, all this normality going on in the in the background, uh, uh, debating motions. And then the second count came out and it was very, if, if there's such a thing as a nail-biting count, it was a very nail-biting count. And the second one, I think it was level with Larry McCarthy. And then in the third one on the on the transfers, then Larry beat me. I think um, I think all, all counts are nailed, but we're we're both political nerds here, so we, we definitely would be interested in that. I think um, you've got a very clear manifesto, and we, we'll get to that in a minute because you know you, you said the same things consistently over a long period of time. The one thing that I'm just not sure of is why do you want to do it? So, like, because it's such a, a thankless task in many ways, and. And even the role, we can talk about that in a minute, but like to, to come back from that, I know I've heard you talk about resilience before, but it's obviously not just something that y- you want to do, it's something you clearly believe in. Yeah, well, it's, it's a wee bit like, people would ask me the same question, why would you want to become chairman of your club? I mean, I, in 2010, I became chairman of my club, and I mean, that's a very challenging task as well, because essentially, particularly in the North, you are the leader of that community, and you're making big decisions that impact on people, because the GA is not just the games that you play. You really are in charge of a community, and... Uh, I, it is very challenging, but I enjoy that challenge and I enjoy leading. Same thing when I became principal of the school. A lot of people would say, you know, biggest school in the north, 1,700 pupils, 170 staff altogether. Why would you want to put yourself through that? But I just think of this innate desire to lead and I, I enjoy leading. I enjoy that challenge. It gives me a great buzz. But to lead the GA is something that I've always thought about and it's something that has always been talked about around me. Uh, whenever I finished playing in 1999, I was really propelled into leadership straight away by becoming the first chair of the Players Committee. The GPA had just been formed. Sean McCaig came to my house. He was the, the, the president-elect at that time and he said, I want you to do a very, very important job for me. And I thought a long time about it because I had just intended at that stage going into coaching in my club. But that really took over my life for three years, uh, three years straight into Central Council. Getting on to Central Council is something that a lot of people build up to. But suddenly I was a young man looking around me, right in the heart of the government of the GAA. And that three years taught me an awful lot. It was very tumultuous because at that time there was, uh, there was quite a lot of debate going on about, about the amateur status and about player welfare and all very of that. Very people forget about it. We, we were literally just coming on air in, in 2002 and um, there was an organisation called Of One Belief which was set up to try and spoil the very existence of the GPA and even they were unhappy with what the GAA were doing and you were kind of at the, at the forefront of that. So I think people have forgotten just how militant that whole period was. Yeah, well, the GPA was on one side and of one belief was on the other side and uh, they didn't, neither of them liked me because I was right in the middle and what I was saying to both of them was we are all GA people, let's try and achieve this change organically within the organisation without the need to set up separate organisations one way or the other and I, I think where we are now is where we are inevitably going to come one way or the other because the Players Committee did achieve quite a lot. One of the things that I found when I went on to Central Council at the start was if you were in Central Council you got 50 cents a mile or 50p a mile as it was then. 
But around the country, it was just dependent on what the county treasurer or the county board could afford. So some, some players were getting 15p a mile, others were getting 20p a mile. And I was saying, well, if 50p a mile is good enough for central council, why is it not good enough for players? So I, 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 that was the first big change that we got, uh, uh, just 50p a mile for every single player throughout Ireland. And it was a real great achievement. And then we moved on to things like what entitlements all players were, were, could get in terms of boots, gloves, hurley sticks, all, all of that. And if you look back, we did achieve quite a lot. And we did create a template out of which arose later agreements between the GPA then and, and the GA. You bring up the mileage. Uh, you're from Armagh. There are my players out this week saying that they haven't got paid. Uh, I think some, some, some stuff has happened since they had to go public with it. But we still aren't at a point where everything is fixed when it comes to that, are we? Well, that's not actually Armagh. It was an Armagh player brought it out. But remember, GA expenses are given out centrally now, Ger. So it's, it, Aidan Nugent was speaking probably on behalf of all of the players because none of the players throughout Ireland had received expenses. Now, at this stage, it would be very timely for me to say, isn't that terrible? Because I'm not involved in any of the committees in Croke Park and they should be doing this and, and I'm going to change all that. But the reality, like a lot of things in the GA, is much more mundane. Uh, what happened was, in order for that to be given out centrally, every single player has to give in their account details, their short code, their back, their IBAN. You imagine getting that from, what, maybe five, a thousand county players and think of how disorganised they are. I have one in my house, uh, Jarley Oak. I doubt if his details were in, if I know how he runs his life. And uh, that was the problem. I, I, I'm the chair of the GA um, Planning and Infrastructure Committee, uh, Club Planning, and we discussed it actually last night and they were saying that that uh, 90% of that difficulty was that the, the players charter only come out in, in November it had to be signed by each player in December before any of this could be done and then all of that admin had to be put in place so that you were asking to do a lot in a very short time but the, it, it's actually a portal uh, and it's up and running now and all of that so everybody's living happily ever after I, that ideally that, that cheating problem but the system and the infrastructure is correct and that's going to be fixing it is it used to be Ger that you would when I played you would write out your mileage every month and hand it in and the county treasurer would take a look at it and think oh, I don't think you went on that Reddings tonight or put it, and uh, maybe a month later you would get it the way it works now you put it all into a portal it actually the spreadsheet then goes to the usually the, the liaison officer uh, he'll looks at it to see if it's commensurate with what you say you had done and then it goes in. It's actually, there's quite a lot of checks on it before the player actually gets the money. You used a, an important phrase about um, um, the uh, Central Council uh, as the government of the GEA. I'm always a little bit wary of the power that the president and the government actually seems to wield because we're told there's a tension between the, the administrative arm and Central Council, and I don't know if it exists or not. Do you honestly believe that as the president, you'll be able to shape the future of the organisation and carry along with it the executive who will actually carry out the 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 vision that you have as president? Well, one of the things that I would always find, and this is the second time I've gone around every county, I've travelled every county in Ireland, apart from the ones in the north who nominated me and said, don't be coming up to us, we've nominated you, spend your time going around the other counties. There is always this difficulty where members of Central Council feel that they are, at the moment, they're just a rubber stamping exercise because the GAM Management Committee meet the night before the Central Council meeting. They go through the agenda, they make a lot of decisions themselves, and then they bring it in. You 
really for further discussion, but if you already have had the management committee go through it, you have a lot of people in the central council room who have a corporate responsibility to go with what they voted on last night, and it's difficult then to demur from some of the decisions which have been made. That sometimes creates uh, a little bit of frustration in central council, and you know it is a model that works throughout the GA and every county in the GA we have the county board which is representative of every club and then you have the county executive and the county executive make a lot of the day-to-day operational decisions and the county board meets once a month you know to discuss them and to ratify them uh, the difficulty I feel at the moment it is is that I've done two stints in Central Council I did one in the early 2000s as players rep I did one I think it was 2013 for five years as the Armagh representative in Central Council I found it had changed quite a lot because the five-year rule has changed a lot it's changing now all the time back then you had out and out central council men in 2001 with the result that central council although it's a representative from every county it should be their charge with the corporate governance of the GA so the central council representative should be Croke Park's man in the county rather than the county's man in Croke Park and I found that I, I think now we have like 32 independent republics each fighting their own corner and not wanting to give anything and it's difficult to get decisions made in that arena and one example of that Jerry, is whenever the decision was brought in that you could have a sponsor in the back of your jersey I felt that that was a great opportunity for us to bring in genuine equality and instead of allowing each county to make a deal with an individual sponsor which would discriminate against the Division 3 and Division 4 teams against the Division 1 and Division 2 teams because if you're a Division 1 team you can very, very easily get a sponsor. And I, I found this, like Armagh have been in Division 3 during my time as an executive, and now we're in Division 1. When you're in Division 3, you're scraping for sponsors. When you're in Division 1, you don't have sponsors, you have, you have uh, commercial partners. And it's a completely different relationship and a completely different capacity to get sponsorship. So what I was arguing was that the GA ourselves should use all of our corporate ability to get one sponsor, put it on every jersey. I mean, you could get millions for that. Every county jersey in Ireland, hurling and football, would have that sponsor on the back of it. And give the money out on a sliding scale, Division 3, Division 4 first, followed by up Division 1, which would be, you know, dealing with the reality that there is no way that Leitrim has the same capacity to get sponsorship as Armagh or Mayo or, or, or Dublin. So it didn't even get a seconder. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the, and so that's what I'm worried about here is that you you can have a, a brilliant vision for where the organisation should go, but that actually the president isn't the role in which you're going to be able to. You now, if you say that this time as the president, you're definitely going to get a seconder because somebody will be like, okay, I need to I need to keep in with the president, and that's just the real politic of it. I, I guess I'm wondering. Is there any possibility that you get this job and find it frustrating about how quickly or otherwise you're able to implement the vision that you have? Well, uh, yeah, I think that there is a number of answers to that. If I, I should have been cannier with that motion. I should have had all of the Division 3, Division 4 uh, counties on my side. I should have rung them all. That's the way it happens. That's the way you get change. You work very, very hard at it. And then you go you know, to, 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 to some of the other smaller counties and go to people who you know in Central Council and say, this is the right thing to do and have everybody prepared for it. So I'm maybe being a wee bit unfair on Central Council. When people think about, and, and uh, somebody, I think it was John Costa in Dublin, said this to me. He said, "Like, what change really can the president make? Like, you're saying you're going to do all these things, but can the president really change? Well, I think you can try your best to change the culture of a lot of how we do things. You have only three years to do things. You're also bound by a strategic plan that goes until 2026. Right. And it is a very effective plan, but there's things I would like to add to it. But the president of the GA doesn't have, like Donald Trump, the ability to bring in an executive order or anything like that. You are... you. But what you have to do is to gain consensus at the meeting and to try and bring people around to your vision because 
you have to be responsible and you have to be a safe pair of hands. Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned Donald Trump there. We're all fascinated by the, by the red and the blue and the geography when a, when a US presidential election comes around. You have to keep the Nordies out was a phrase that, that kind of came up in, the, I think it was the last uh, election for, for GA president. Is, is that an attitude that still prevails? Is, is it tougher for, for someone like yourself to, to get the top job? Well, the last president from the North was Peter Quinn. Uh, he was in the 90s, and the one prior to that was um, Paddy McFlynn, and he went three times to get it, but I certainly won't be going three times. <laughs> the interesting thing is, I, I don't subscribe to that at all, because some of the best friends I have in the GA are from the deepest south. Um, this time, unlike the last time, I have a team working for me, working very, very hard, and I, I haven't discovered that. Certainly not to my face. Nobody has said that. But I will say this. When you're a GA presidential candidate in the North, you get asked questions that you don't get asked if you're from the South, just by the fact that in the North, in the South, for example, our Irish culture, our flag, our anthem, all of those things are rational, logical things we have as patriots and we love our country. And the GA is part of that expression of our Irish identity. In the North, where all of this is contested and toxic, um, you have to be very, very careful how you deal with all of those questions and how we as the GA present ourselves, because one of our values is inclusion. And you can't say that you're inclusive if you are not inclusive. And that involves being non-controversial while at the same time maintaining the things which mean an awful lot to all of us. Very difficult, treading the eye of a needle in the middle of a storm. It is, but the, the GA is very well led in the north, in Ulster, and it's the Ulster GAA who do it. Kieran McLaughlin is the president, uh, Brian McAvoy is the, is the CEO. They have a, a remarkable and extraordinary capacity to keep us out of that political uh, maelstrom, and they do it really well. The GAA is seen as being a very responsible organisation, very uncontroversial. We stay out of the politics, even when sometimes it affects us, we make a decision, no, we might be better stepping back and working in the background. And there are things, for example, with regard to the Irish Language Act, things which are very important to us in the GAA, important to me, that we have stayed out of because we feel that it is more important to be involved in reconciliation than and controversy. While Stormont existed, uh, there was actually somebody whose job it was to lobby Stormont on behalf of the GA, and it's interesting that that's something that you've brought up that the the GA could play a more active and proactive role in terms of influencing government policy. And I just would that in, in your vision for that is that is that one of the roles of the president? Is it one of the roles of the executive? Do you think that there should be an, a, an appointee whose job it is to lobby on behalf of the GA? Yeah, that's a good point to make, Ger. Also, GA, you should actually have a member of staff who went and sat in Stormont every day and listened to every debate and was there and would have taken notes and was able then to influence in the background in the lobbies. And I think that in the GA, because we occupy this extremely central place in the, the parochial nature of Ireland in every single parish, um, we we really are in a very strong position and sometimes I don't think we use that enough to our advantage. For example there's a very exciting and very challenging era coming up for us with full integration with the, with the ladies games and in our club we, we have a full integration from the very beginning. I don't understand how you could even run a club by not being fully integrated and we have to be very careful how we do that but if we are going to do that we'll be dividing our assets into three. There'll be three organisations will become one and I think that's a good op- opportunity for us to make a very strong claim that look, our, our assets are now 
very, very stretched, uh, particularly at this time of year, whenever you know we, you need lights to train on. Uh, and I think it's a good time for us to say now that we need a massive injection of, ca- of, of cash to put field, an extra field, maybe 5G field, into every single parish in Ireland with floodlights on it that we could use to train all of our teams. And I think it's a, if you considered in 1884 the GA was founded, 1883 Conrad and was founded, the GA has done a remarkable job in keeping our games to the, to the level that they are at, considering what is all around us in terms of rugby and soccer and all of the other sports. GA is still very, very much the game of Ireland. And if you think about it, 140 years on from our founding, the biggest problem we have is we don't have enough fields for the people who want to play our games, male and female. And that's a great problem to have, but it requires a solution. What, what is the solution? More well, pitches, more yeah, money, the, investment yeah, yeah, from the You know, as chair of the, G, of, of the Ulster GA Club Planning Infrastructure Committee, like last night, for example, we were looking at a club, Pomeroy, who are, who are you know, the, every club who has to, who has to, who's doing a major development comes to us because we are a trustee signature on any loan that, 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 that is made. Um, the, the ability of clubs to fundraise and to create their own resources, many of whom are nothing even to do with the core values of the GA. For example, walking tracks now cost about 20000 There's nothing in any of the GA rule that says that we should do that. But now we have a commitment to health and well-being. And that is a commitment that has been handed down to us by a government who have asked us to take on that on their behalf. And clubs are doing it. So I think it's a good thing, though, because it means that people who might not necessarily be associated with the club are coming and using the facilities and then finding themselves predisposed to coming to matches. And it broadens the, the scope of the people who consider themselves members. It does, as does things like SCORE, which brings in a lot of people who are not footballers or hurlers, and they can you know, show their the dancing, singing, all of those things. And the G is really, really good at that. And what I'm saying is that I think it was Eamon Dunphy who said that, if, I mean, Eamon Dunphy wouldn't put him down as a GA man. If the, if the government emptied all of its exchequer into the GA's purse, it still couldn't pay the GA for what we have done in terms of putting a sporting infrastructure free of charge throughout Ireland. And I know that there would be people listening to this and say, hang on, we should put that money into, into health rather than... But no, if you put it into sporting infrastructure and put it into the GA, the GA, because of our sense of place and our love of place, give people purpose. Because a human being needs a purpose and the GA does that because it creates the sense of community and if you have people walking playing doing all of the things that you do in a community suddenly then they are healthier and i think preventative expenditure is much better than than, or or just as good as spending it whenever people get sick Uh, jonathan the ga being proactive on certain things is something that that seems to crop up a lot um like i was i was at the croke park for the the uh, president's or the director general's report recently where they're talking about the Glen Kilmacud situation and could the GA have intervened a little bit sooner maybe the day or day after the game ordered a replay and look the argument was made by the GA and I know it might be made by yourself as well that if they intervene there they have to intervene in, in, in junior games all across the country would you like to see the GA be, be more proactive in situations like that going forward that there could maybe be an intervention as opposed to someone, someone like Glenn having to make a decision on their own accord I would say that if, if all of that happened again the Central Competitions Control Committee could not do one thing any differently. Not one thing. And and the reason for that is that you cannot intervene in the All-Ireland Final because that rule exists, yes, for the All-Ireland Final, but also for Silver Ridge v. Mullaban next week in the other 13s. Could that be changed, though? No, it it, well, in all of the years that I have been involved in the GA, A, nobody has ever brought it to Congress to change it, and B, it's never going to be brought. Am I, am I mis- misreading the rule? Because the, the second part of, of Rule 644 actually says that on investigation, 
the particularly in in the um, 16th man or, or 17th man or whatever on investigation that there can be an intervention so that rule does exist for the under 14s and yes. Mullaban and it does exist in the Ireland final it's just that we have as an organisation chosen not to use this rule but it's there yeah, it's, but, but this is the important point if you listen to what Maliki Work said straight after the game whenever it was pointed out that there was 16 men he said well that's really irrelevant we're not going to pursue that and that is 90% of the case particularly in a final and there's a cup given out you say right it's over. Yeah, it's very disappointing. It shouldn't have happened, but we're not going to pursue it. So if you had an investigating committee, for example, and it said that the committee will view television footage to decide if this was true or whatever, and they did, and then they said the game's going to be replayed, you could have a situation where they would say, no, we were happy enough with this result. We're not going to replay it. And then you're into a real mess. I think... If there was anything different we could have done, we, we probably could have come out and explained our situation a bit better. Because the GA rules might be a lot of thing, things, but they are fair. They well, are very, very fair. The rule, and they're fair the rule, to everybody. The rule does say, on an inquiry by the committee in charge. And the committee in charge is obviously... Yes, but yeah. that is on an inquiry after an objection has been made. No, it, it, no, it says... It, it, I mean, I think that's an interpretation because there's a full stop. Penalties, unapproved objection, award of gain to the opposing team or replay are fine depending on the circumstances, full stop. And then separately, on an inquiry by the committee in charge, forfeiture of gain without award of gain to the opposing team or replay are fine depending on the circumstances. Look, there's no point... No, as somebody who has been through this at my club, I can tell you, because this came up actually in an under-13 league semi-final between us and Alatsia, the club, recently, where we had to make the objection, even though there were people there watching. And we were told, we, you know, people from the Armand CCC, we were told, no, you have to make the objection. And we did make the objection. And after we make the objection, the inquiry happens. But the objection has to happen first. But in in the rule, it doesn't look like that. Yeah, like but the way it's written and the way it's crafted, I, yeah. I think there's, there's two things: there's precedent, yes. right, and then there's also what everybody wanted to happen. I think under under these rules, it would have been possible for the organisation committee to say, citing on an inquiry by the committee in charge, we're the committee in charge, we've seen the video evidence, and we've decided that there's something. I think there's room for that. Yeah, and look, now, there's one difficulty there with that. If that's in the referee's report, yes. If it's not in the referee's report, you can't go you can't go re-refereeing the game. Because if you're going to take those words on an inquiry, it means then that there is a precedent that you can inquire into everything that was made. So if there was a lift ball in the square in the last five minutes, you can equally... Re- yeah, it is, it is It is. in the rules, though. There, there was... I, look, again, yeah, yeah, I, don't want, yeah. I don't want to get bogged down. Anything. I do think that there was a mechanism there for them to access, but that there was a decision made that this opens up a can of worms. And I actually think sometimes can of worms is no harm for us to... To look, let's, let's, let's see what's at the bottom of the can. Yeah, but can of worms means then that every single co- county and unit... I mean, I've sat on the Disputes Resolution Authority, the DRA, for the last 20 years. I've seen everything. I sat on Ulster Hearings Committee. I've seen everything. And if you were to ask me, is there anything about the GA that I don't like... Well, I was going to say. Right. It's, it, because the GA is a replication of Irish society, there are good and bad in Irish society. Okay, it's, so it's a, it reflects it's, yeah. the good and it reflects the bad. And the bad is that if you look at, for example, Roy Keane getting the yellow card in the European semi-final, and you know there wasn't one Paris commentator said, "Oh yeah, Man United are going to try and appeal that." But in the GA, that's in our culture. It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah, we'll appeal that. We, we, and there's always the GA rules are almost set up to allow for that to happen because, as as, as Donal Logue said one time, there's always another throw of the dice. If you fail here, you can go into hearings, you can go into DRA, you can go into Ulster hearings. And I just don't like that culture where you know people will say, "Yeah, he he got sent off. He hit a man there. He needs he needs to learn his lesson. He needs to get a month. He needs to take that month and he needs to reflect." It's not. It's 
how can we get them off? And, and I, I don't like that. And that's that's not specific to GA. That's what our society is like. We, 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 we try and bend the rules. Another element of that, uh, of the GA, that some people don't like is the reticence to ch- towards change. Like, uh, really what should come out of the Glenkill McCudd situation is change, maybe in terms of the substitutions or how that uh, operation happens. It's been suggested that soccer does it well. Player comes off, player comes on. It's all very mechanical. We know what happens. In the GA, it's just a bit more flaky. But... Do you feel that there's a reticence towards change in the GA at the minute, that that maybe there should be more... Like, it it should have been changed already. There should have been a point made that the substitutions is completely changed because of what happened. Yeah, well, I I can't imagine another time in all of the times we've been watching GA games that this has happened in a a game like this. But here's here's, here's the way it happens, right, in in GA matches. And we've all been in thousands of matches and we know the way it works. So in a very, very close match, it comes to about the 59th, the 60th minute, into the 70th minute, and then everything becomes frenetic. Every move you could get a score. Every You're expecting, like Armagh v Mayo there a couple of weeks ago, Armagh got five scores in the last 10 minutes. There was more football played in the last five minutes than there was in the first 65 minutes and I've spoken to people I've actually spoken yesterday to somebody from the Central Competition Control Committee who said that we should probably bring in a rule that once the 70th minute comes you can't make any more substitutions now, when I was chair of the Standing Committee of Playing Rules, we brought in a rule because we felt that a lot of substitutions were made just to waste time, that there's an extra half a minute put on for every substitution. So a lot of teams don't realise that, you know, the referee's going to put on an extra half a minute for this. So perhaps if we did, I'm not saying we should, but a certain something to consider, we always look at a solution-based approach that perhaps if you brought in that rule on the 70th minute after that, for the last five minutes, let's have extra time, no substitutions can be made. The only trouble then is if somebody gets legitimately injured yeah, and you end up with 13 men on the pitch and somebody has 15 and because they were injured even though they have not used all yeah, stuff. And you know, Jerry, you say unless unless you get legitimately injured or unless it's a head injury, we all know no, what no, happened. Somebody goes down. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly it. I guess the, if, if the rule of the 30 seconds was applied and was everybody just expected eight or nine minutes of injury time, then that might cure it. The World Cup, they, yes, they managed yeah. to do that very well. But um, anyway, look, we, we got a bit sidetracked there, but I think you, you've covered most of the, the key points on, on your agenda for this when do you when is the actual moment that you'll find out is well it's Friday uh, I think the, I think the vote is at 7pm we'll know everything at 9 there'll be a lot of people following it on social media uh, a lot of people in my club want to come down to it. They did the last time, surprised me. It looked round and there was all these blue and yellow. It was a busload the last uh, time, wasn't it? Was it a busload came down. Um, and I wasn't expecting it, couldn't believe it when I saw it. I think they were expecting me to win. Uh, and though if somebody said that one of the ladies, when we back to the club, she says, Yeah, we weren't that disappointed. We got to meet Marty Morrissey. Is <laughs> <laughs> canvassing for number twos? You, you, cannot, is, you obviously canvass yeah. for number ones, but number twos. The number twos are so important, and I, I made that mistake the last time. I, I was a novice and I. I thought uh, just why not go for the number one but remember people are very provincially loyal so you'll go for the man in your province and the last time then of course we had Larry who was overseas and he had the overseas vote and it's, it's difficult to capture that vote unless you are over and back all the time I have been you know, I've been over at the Asian Games. I would spend a good bit of time in England, at, at you know, at, at their GAA. I go to a lot of functions over there. You know, I've been, I've played in America myself. But you can never really capture the challenges. So yesterday, for example, on the week of Congress, I arrived yesterday. You meet the overseas delegations as they're coming over. So yesterday I met Canada, I met Asia. Uh, today I meet North America, and then I'll meet the rest of them. And you ignore those units at your parallel because every one of those have their own. Challenges and their own opportunities. They're all at a different stage in their continuum of development, and and 
I think there is sometimes an attitude, oh yeah, you're doing great work, but you know, don't be bothering us. And I, yeah. I think the overseas are a crucial part because if you have a child who's going abroad to work, and you're, you're worried about them getting on the plane in nine times out of ten they'll ring you up a few days and they say we'll tell you there's a GA club and we've we have met ten or twelve people and we're going to train and suddenly if you, my child is safe and it yeah. happened to my our own daughter Megan when she went to work in Qatar in Doha and look, her mummy was just up the walls and the following night no no I've, I've Oryx Naharan <laughs> a GA club in Doha right. and they were shooting around all of the countries around playing games and, and that's their social scene I hope she was canvassing for you in Doha as well now she's we, back home. She's married to D. O'Keefe, who plays uh, midfield for Wexford, and uh, that's that, that's a whole different story. Well, there'll be good genes there, Jonathan. We wish you the very best of luck. We did offer your uh, rivals the opportunity as well, but unfortunately, the time hasn't worked out for them. So, thanks very much for making the time to come into us today, and we wish you the very best of luck. Thank you very much, Jared. It's uh, eight fifty-five this morning. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Oh eight seven nine one eighty one eighty is the WhatsApp number. James Tracy, the retired Leinster and Ireland hooker, is in studio next. Here's some Mark Lawrence and goodness talking to Joe after Arsenal. Man City last night. Enjoy. Will this be a real uh, beginning of the end moment for them is the question or is, is there enough experience no. in there to almost rally again and say most title winners have these blips? Yeah, they've got, they've got more than that in, in, in all honesty. Um, the, the problem is that, you know, the team now in front of them could very well almost win every single game. That's, that, that's the worry. But no, I think you know, there's, a, there's another manager, Arteta, who's, who's very much driven, um, and be interesting, obviously, hear what he, what he says tonight because you know he, he keeps saying when when it, the recent results are draw at home against Brentford, the loss at Everton, he said I love my players and they give everything for me, and um, he's very much a modern mm. kind of kind of manager. But there, w- there will be doubts, but there always are doubts. I mean. You don't kind of sit next to your mate in the dressing room after the match and say, oh, we, we've had it. But you're thinking to yourself, what's going to happen? Mm. Um, maybe maybe because they have quite a few young players in the team, it might start to affect them. It wouldn't really start to affect the older ones because they've been through it. And um, as long as the dressing room is, is, is strong, which I think it is, it, it would appear to be, it, it shouldn't be. Uh, Mark Lawrence talking with Joe last night. You can get that on the Football Show podcast stream. Now, I'm delighted to say James Tracy, former Leinster and Ireland hooker, is with us in studio. Uh, James, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Thank you very much. Thanks for having me in. Good time for Irish rugby at the moment. Um, about as good as it's ever been. I was about to say that. I was like, not bad. Not yeah. bad, yeah. Um, I think for, from, a, from a fan point of view now, watching on... Um, it's unbelievable to watch like the brand that they're playing uh, as well as being dominant uh, in, in most areas as well um, I think it's it's probably the best spot we've been we've been going into a World Cup but um, you know hopefully a, a Grand Slam or um, you know even a Six Nations win is on the cards first Tommy uh, I, I was behind the goal um where Ringo scored his, his try at the weekend but in the first half when we had the ball the the movement of the ball was so quick that at times I was like, which of these lads has it at the moment? And then you'd see the the play would spin off to the left. Were there ever times in training where you're like, holy shit, this is good? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've we've played with you know the likes of Johnny, you, you know some of the lads who are the best to ever do it. Uh, 
you're always going to be surprised about how good they are and how like us mere mortals are, <laughs> are lucky to be on the same field. Um, but yeah, no, the like Stuart when he came over would have brought a lot of pace into our training, so it's very intense, uh, very quick. We were Tuesdays or Tuesday session. He kind of takes the reins and and uh, makes sure everyone's unbelievably high paced, and that's uh the detail at high pace is kind of comfortable and chaos is is uh is what he wants us to get in and I think that's really fed into to what Ireland are doing and uh, in now they've kind of like taken it to another level we assume that that is to do with breakdown and body positioning and all that kind of stuff and I'm sure it is but it's equally I guess handling the handling skills seem to be off the charts at the moment it is it is but it's it's everything as you said it's it's the the little detail um and it carries over to everything it's like the attention to the 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 tiny minute bits of detail because at the end of the day like everyone runs very similar shapes but it's how you run them and how you you you, you like get people off the, their feet at the rook and everyone knowing their ne- their next role and how you're trying to manipulate the defense um you know uh, a good analogy you know like a pit stop when there's you know 20 people are involved in changing uh, the tires and getting the fuel in and everything if one person messes up it, you know it it, yeah. it it doesn't work so everyone has like a little role to play that makes the car go that little bit much much faster okay that that does make sense we we asked you a nice handy one uh, uh, as your introduction to us, to do the depth charts for the front <laughs> row. And I, I thought this was going to be a very straightforward, it's very obvious at the moment. We all know what our first choice front row is. And so loose head followed expected lines with Porter first, Teeley second, and Kilcoyne third. But at Hooker, there seems to be some mistake. It says Kelleher, number one, and Dan Sheehan's number two. But Dan Sheehan's world, like, the best player in the world. What's going on here? I think... Uh First of all, I feel like I was set up for failure with, with this one, but uh, I know. Typo, like, typo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, listen, the, I think Dan's been unbelievable. And I think it's one of those kind of like Messi Ronaldo situations where it's like, you're doing well if you've either of them in your team, uh, but it's, you know, w- what would you prefer at the time? And I think, uh, like, I think Ronan. At his at his peak before he had this run of injuries, I thought could have been one of the best to ever do it. His scrummaging uh, is is off the charts as well as all the other things. But like, I sat there for yeah, you know, I had about twenty minutes to do it. I sat there for ten minutes of kind of been like him and Han of of what it was. Um, it's Dan's jersey now, but by a hundred percent. But I just think for, from. Um, you know, playing against both and scrumming against both and everything, I was just kind of like, oh, like just you know, it's about balance in the front row as well of like who who you're starting and and I just tiny like pip. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So explain this to us, right? Going against them, um, you, you mentioned Keller scrummaging straight off there. What is we haven't a clue what that is, right? Like what what is that the pressure you feel when you're up against him? Is that like you're off your spot? Is it his center of gravity? What is it specifically that you're like? Oh, it's a bit of everything. It's his understanding of of how to make you feel uncomfortable. The, like every scrum is is different uh, uh, when you're in there, and, and I think that's what makes Tyke Furlong so exceptional. Is uh, you know, there's a lot of scrummers out there who are good by just being aggressive, or they're good because they can hold the fort. But there's a there's a level of intellect which kind of takes you to the next level, and that's like the Tyke Furlongs of the world is what makes him. You know, one of the best to ever do it at Tighthead, um, and I think uh, Ronan would would be kind of very, very, very intelligent in that area, as well as being an absolute freak of nature. Which Dancy and Jean is also an absolute freak of nature. Yeah, so like, that helps. It, it, you know, I'm lucky that these two freaks of nature didn't come along five years earlier because I wouldn't have had any sort of career. So I'm delighted for that. But uh, you know, I can't really pick too much between them. But if I'm to, to nitpick a tiny bit. 
uh, I, I think I, I'd pip. Even to have Rob Herring at three, like I mean, strength and depth, as we've been saying on the show a couple of weeks, for the last couple of weeks, is imperative if you're going to win not only a Grand Slam but a World Cup. So that looks good. Yeah, no, and, and he's unbelievably solid and, and fair play to him. He's uh, like is 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 throwing um, and and seems like his leadership on the pitch and and he's very calm, um, which is important, especially like you're coming into to big games, um, you know. You're you're sitting there and you want to make a big impact, but first you got to kind of, especially as a hooker, because a lot of times you come on and it's a throw is your first thing and it's yeah. a big moment. Yeah, uh, you just got to like fit in, do your job first. Yeah, literally fit in, do your job first, and then everything else after that is a, is a bonus. Um, can you explain the in- intelligence of Furlong as well? Because it's not something that again any of us understand really. But when you're uh, in a front row against Furlong and, and Kelleher saying. And it's training. How do you know it, it's it's Furlong versus anybody else who it could be? What do you mean? What are you feeling that's different when Furlong and you're going up against them? It's more when I'm trying to like when you're trying to do something to them. It's their ability to adapt, uh, or you know they'll come up with something that you haven't felt before, and and that's the difference between you know so like some people can be really good at doing one thing and they can make an unbelievable career doing one thing. Like Michael Bent was an exceptional. Uh, aggressive scrummager what he was like you know if you're talking top trumps 10 out of 10 at doing one thing right um, but uh, you know his uh, his ability to, if, you, if you could block that you know he might not have had as many things in the repertoire uh, as someone else but my god was he good at that one thing and if he, it was very hard to stop um, what I feel like Tyg would have he could do he almost kind of he could deal with any situation really and he, he can solve a lot of situations that a lot of other tight heads might not be able to do and, and that's what for me anyway puts him on that next level of, of and the type of situations he's coming up against is uh, somebody like changing the angle or, exactly, or yeah. them cheating one way or another yes exactly yeah. and every, like it's everyone's you know we're all trying to get our, our advantage some way and, and there's loads of different ways to scrummage and, and you know you, you always come up with they find a new way of, of either bending the laws or um, or getting away with certain ways of scrummaging and, and it's figuring out okay how do we problem solve in the heat of the moment in the biggest games because um, that, that's the hardest part How much of that is down to the analysis you do before the game starts on the referee and what they're going to allow does that change the strategy in the build up to the game going okay we have this referee and these touch judges who are going to referee this this way that'll allow us to do a certain thing is that a, a small part a big part it's a layer um, so it'll be part of our prep so it'll be the, towards the end of our prep it would be a lot on uh, you know obviously who you're playing against the individuals and again like from looking at footage what are they really good at what are they what do they not like and then coming up with a plan of okay this is our starting front row because again it's all about the pairings of who you have and what their strengths are um, because you know if if Keenheedy's on one side and and, uh, and and Tig's on the other you know like Tig uh, you know they, they, are, they are a good pairing but you'd have some loose heads that might be a good pairing with a tight head and, and vice versa in terms of what they're good at right? and trying to figure out how you can manipulate that so then so a few layers and then the ref comes into it but right. like okay well this ref doesn't like this picture and that's kind of what we want to do maybe it's we'll we'll pick the area on the field or we'll do that because or and the situation so that, that kind of comes into decision making okay is it worth our while taking this punt to go for this this style of uh, of attack and how 
scientific can you be then in the actual moment, right? So this is all the theory. And then you get to the practice, everybody has a plan until they get a punch in the course. face. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's what makes good, that separates good players from great players is being able to, you know, you're never going to be perfect all the time, but being able to realize, okay, what went wrong there? What's our solution? And then actually executing the solution in the next one. So, um, it'll be on the hooker quite a lot to, to to have a conversation with the the two props, the rest of the lads will just listen and go and go and. Uh, what are those conversations about? Like I'm feeling. What are you exactly? On this what side. you're feeling? What you, what uh, you feel the setups like? What you feel could be done differently? And then what's the plan for for the next one? And have there been games where it's been going horribly after three or four scrums, and you're able to fix that? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, like, you know, you look back at some ones that really stand out, like the, the Leinster, uh, the European Cup final. Northampton game. Northampton game, yeah. exactly. Where, you know, Tongui is having an absolute field day. Um, and, and they, you know, they, they change up what they're doing at half time, and then all of a sudden they're on top in the scrum, and the whole game turns on its head. Yeah. Um, it, it's just problem solving sometimes is that technical as opposed to like uh, some kind of physical inspiration that somebody gets a it's a combination of both right yeah because you look at the uh, like the the Argentinian uh, teams and the Italian teams of old where uh, and Georgian teams where there'd be a lot of like passion would be driven in and and maybe not as much a technique now I'm going back years now they've definitely that's not the case anymore but they were exceptionally good because they were all driven at doing one thing exceptionally passionate exceptionally well um, and and now the the game's moved on and so have they um, but you know it just shows that like if, if you're all bought into one way of doing things like, that can work too in preparation sense James so you think of NFL and you know I guess in, in training sessions quarterbacks uh, the, the number one quarterback is the guy who gets most of the training sessions done you don't really practice with your backup quarterback maybe a little bit you say something like type for long injury happens Finley Bealham comes in a tight head Clearly, Ireland at the moment have been practicing with a number of different permutations, and Tom O'Toole comes in seamlessly at the weekend as well. So, I'd imagine in, in training sessions at this elite level of rugby, every single eventuality of front row is is dealt with and, and covered at some point. You'd think that, uh, but uh, like there's a level, there's only so many reps. So you know, it's kind of like it's it's a, it's a game of of trying to get the most amount of volume in without injuring people and having them too tired so it's like there's a happy medium between getting um, synergy between the different players but at the same time you know it's a traditional game there's only so many kind of miles in the clock you have so you don't want to go 50 scrums so everyone gets to uh, scrummage with each other no, it's kind of like we only have you know we only might only have 20 uh, to do so okay you want to have that starting front row getting at least half of those if not more together and then everything else y- y- we do quite a bit of um of setups which is not going to engagement with the different combinations mm-hmm. and then you're you're setting uh, you're 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 at least getting the setup part uh you're getting familiar there um but it's kind of over time you build a relationship with everyone because you don't really get as many reps as you'd like with everyone but the starters and the subs will always get a decent uh, rep, amount of reps together. When Leo was uh, was talking about you in um, your retirement press release, he talked about your attention to detail and the amount of time you spent in the analysis room. And it's clear listening to you now that you still have a massive grow for that. Is there coaching in your future at some point, do you think? I don't think so. No? No, not, not right now anyway. Um, 
uh, yeah, it's not not on the not on the horizon. Gonna it's not a rugby knowledge that's just like setting off into the ether. You know? Yeah, oh no, and that's that's probably the hardest part I think of finishing up. It's just been like, what do you do with the the IP built up over kind of like fifteen years? Um, but I think I like I want to challenge myself in something new. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, fi- I'll figure something out on on that side of things because I do. I, I really enjoy it. Like I, I watch the games and. I'm always oh we're, you know they're they're doing this now and oh they could have done that differently or you know appreciating the the brilliance of the, some of the little things um, because like you know you get you get addicted to it after a while when yeah, you've done it so long I can see how, why you would um, the other thing that I'm pushing my Kildare agenda here um, <laughs> the rugby in Kildare just exploded yeah. like uh, obviously there's the boys down in Munster but. Um, Apparently, Young Osborne has many other brothers who are nearly as good. There's Jimmy O'Brien. There's yourself. What happened? When did like? Because they all seem to have come together around the same time. Uh, it's something in the water down there. I don't know. Um, no, like Nace has been a brilliant club for for a long time, and and uh, like a lot of the the Kildare clubs. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure what the secret sauce is that that they're all coming through at once. But. Um, no, it's always been a great rugby county, but uh, yeah, it's just been great, like brilliant. Even having a few more Newbridge College lads coming up through the ranks, um, which, which has been good. Um, How good is Osborne? Very good. Yeah, he's got a cannon of a of a left foot as well. Yeah, he is. He's, he's going to be exceptional. If you think like he's a kid, you know, like he came in, he was was he nineteen making that first first game, and what what a moment as well, you know, off <laughs> off that line out driving him back, uh, big first hit. What what a way to to enter professional rugby. But you know, a lot of lads are playing college rugby or club rugby um, at nineteen, yeah. and you know, you're getting your first experience of playing against, and you look like a nineteen-year-old, exactly. And you're playing against men, and you're like, "Wow, this is a big step up." You know, n- never mind playing professionally against against men, even yeah. though you know you're, you're considered a man, but you're, you're not really. You know, you're oh, you've a lot of growing to do. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So uh, it's been exceptional. I, th- I think is a huge ceiling for him. Um, when the team is doing as well as they are this season, is it hard for you to watch that now retired? Yeah. I'd be lying if I didn't say uh, you want to be part of it you know I've been there for the whole journey and the ups and the highs and the lows and and everything Um, yeah it's very tough to watch but but I'll preface that by saying it makes it a lot easier to swallow knowing that it's Dan and Ronan because I know I wouldn't be playing anyway because I wouldn't have (laughs) picked me in a million years over them so that makes it a lot easier okay okay it was like makes it a lot easier but uh, (laughs) injury in the end because you're only 31 right like there's still you know three four five years of uh, high quality front row if you wanted it there for you yeah yeah so that's that's the tough part but again, the easy part is looking. Well, I wouldn't play it anyway. So <laughs> you're looking at these guys. You know, I had a different role in the team when when they started coming through. But um, yeah, no, they're two freaks of nature. So I uh, is there any hangover from your injury? Are you totally fine? Like it was just a. It, it would have prevented you from playing rugby at a high level. But it's there's no debilitating day to day stuff. Um, a little bit, like kind of fuzziness in my hand, and it wouldn't it, like it don't quite have the. Uh, full strength. Uh, I never had the greatest throw in the world in terms of like throwing a ball uh, with thing, but it's like I have two bad hands now. But uh, that'll come back. Um, but yeah, rugby is just the main thing. I just can't do my job. Right. Um, yeah. So like, I, it's horrible to, uh, to uh, but does that make it easier in a way? It's like I can't do the thing that I'm supposed to do, and so yeah, no point in me continuing with this. Yeah, and I, I played around with that in my head when I finished. It was like. 
you know, if I dragged on, you know, trying to cling on for maybe two or three years, I think that would have been worse than at least it was out of my, like, out of my hands. There's no possible way I could play. So at least there's a bit of uh, peace in that. It's a hard out road. Like the the that side of professional sport, like and, and you've seen it. I think several of your teammates over the last couple of years. You know, um, Dan Levy, obviously probably the most high profile. But there's loads of other players who play one or two seasons who just make it to yeah. the squad and then don't get to have the career. So is there peace in that? That there's like a European Cup, there's Ireland caps. You know, there was there was a really high level of success in a brilliant team, or does that make it worse? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's both sides. Right. So I'm very grateful for all of that, obviously. But you always want more, like, and that's the, um, like it's bred into us as well. It's always, you know. Well, that's what makes you an elite sports person. Yeah. Um, you always want a little bit more, and and uh, but you know, when it's all said and done, I am very grateful for for the journey that I've been on. I find it even fascinating hearing you talk before about the, but the summer before you get your first cap under Schmidt, and. All of a sudden, you're throwing this hooker, and you're, you weren't confident throwing. And it's no. it sounds like a, a a simple thing for a rugby player, but it's it's not. Like there's so much to the position, and to the skill, that all of a sudden it's like learning to ride a bike. I'd imagine. Yeah, uh, honestly, like comical. If you could hear, I've heard the voices in my head going on of like every time the ball was kicked, either we win a penalty and kick the touch, and I'm like, oh no, or like you know, even worse, they've done an attacking kick and it's like dribbled out on the five meter line, and you're like, oh god. Um, but genuinely, I it didn't. I wasn't comfortable for about two years. Right. I, that voice didn't leave my head for about two years, um, and I was practicing, practicing so much every day. But I, I, I felt like I'd so much to catch up on you know I had years and years and years of reps to, to catch up on um, but yeah you got through got through it in the end but my god it was uh, it was a tough period for just internally you know what I mean it's all this internal negative voice been, did you tell anybody uh, no no just kind of weathered just weathered it but like I wouldn't say it was that hard to tell <laughs> tossing grenades <laughs> into the line so I was hardly walking around with a smile on my face Um but yeah, it was just it was part of part of the journey of of uh, you know I, I probably had a, a limited shelf life in terms of kind of getting my act together there, um, which was probably good in a way you know what like kind of forced me into to having to, to practice loads, uh, and then that just became part of my routine. It obviously worked out for you, James. This is brilliant. Thanks a million. Um, very natural at this. If you want to come back to us sometime, we'd be delighted to have you back. Um, are Ireland going to do the Grand Slam? I feel like they will. Yeah. Yeah, no, they will. They will. I, I won't sit in the fence. They will. Yeah, Scotland are the only problem, really. Yeah, and I, I, smashing them in the last day, and it'll be real. Yeah, them. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> the fact we have them at home as well is brilliant. No, I feel like we have Scotland's number as well. They're, they're playing good stuff, but um, I think, like, if you look at our track record against them and against Scottish sides, uh, we have their number. Good stuff, James. Great to have you with us, and uh, congratulations on a brilliant career. You know, it's one of those things that um, we haven't had the opportunity to talk to you since. So, uh, well done. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's uh, 16 minutes past nine. We're going to do You Had to Be There with Sue Ronan next. Here's what's on OTV Sports Radio for you. Lance Armstrong at one o'clock. Leaders' questions with Stuart Lancaster at three. Our retro panel is Caring for the Sports Person. And Barry Ryan's brilliant book, The Ascent, is uh, the show from seven tonight, is live with Richie, John Giles, and plenty more. You can follow us across our social channels and subscribe to the OTV Podcast Network. But as I said, former Ireland manager Sue Ronan next. You're so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. You had to be there. 
All right, it's one of our favourite slots. It's where we ask somebody uh, why you had to be there on five separate different occasions where it really felt like um, they were witnessing something incredibly special. And I'm delighted to say Sue Ronan is our guest this week, former Republic of Ireland manager. Um, Sue, before we get into your five, there's one that we kind of have to give a special mention for. And this is Liam Brady uh, in the FA Cup final in 1979 versus Manchester United. It didn't make your list, but it inspired the first entry. Yeah, that's right. How are you, get, how are you getting on, guys? Um, good to be on the show. Um, yeah, a huge Arsenal fan. I am not feeling the best this morning, mind you, after the defeat last night to City. But uh, yeah, huge Arsenal fan from as long as I can remember. I have no idea where it came from because nobody else in, in the house at the time uh, followed Arsenal. Possibly because of the huge Irish contingent, I think, at the time in the, the late 70s when I've got my first recollection of watching games live or seeing games live. And you may know you know that the cup final, the FA Cup final in those days was such a huge deal. You know, it, it's not wall-to-wall uh, coverage uh, or there wasn't wall-to-wall coverage then like there is these days. So, you know, you had that one live game every year and you looked forward to it. And if your team was playing in it, you sat watching it from eight o'clock in the morning when there was coverage right through till after the game, you know. So that's what I did. And um that game for me really stood out. I still have the the, the old uh, uh, video cassette video of it. I'm trying to figure out how I can get it digitally converted. But um, what a game that was for Arsenal! They suffered um, a defeat the previous year unexpectedly against the odds and came back that year anyway. And Brady and was just magnificent in that game. They were two 0 up at half time. You know, it was pretty uneventful apart from that. They were playing Man United, who were, were always a big rival. Two 0 up at half time. Frank Stapleton got one one of the goals. Uh, but in the second half, then just coasting to victory. United came out of nowhere, got two quick goals. All of a sudden, then five minutes to go, it's two all. But Brady just stood out for me. He, he he grabbed the game by the scruff of the neck, and I always remember the way he he set up the third goal, the winning goal for Arsenal. Literally. It was nearly literally from the kickoff after United had equalised and he just, you know, made a great run through midfield, released the ball out to Graham Ricks, it was at the time, and he put in a probably a hopeful centre, as they called them in those days, and Alan Sundland, the far post, scored. So, you know, that really inspired um, me and, and uh, the Irish players. I just couldn't wait to see them and I, I wanted to see them live and I wanted to see them playing for Ireland. So I suppose that takes me on to the first game then. It was the first game I was ever at and my first you had to be there uh, Ireland versus France World Cup qualifier Lansdowne Road and it's Liam Brady's performance in this we, we beat them 3-2 we beat them 3-2 yeah um, it was a World Cup qualifier we were in a really tough group um, with Belgium and Holland also in that group and I know we had a we had a goal disallowed away to Belgium in, in, in our game with them now I can't remember whether that came before or afterwards but I remember it was one of those bad referee decisions we seemed to get a lot of them in those days you know it was like a hard luck story played well and goals were disallowed or we didn't get penalties or whatever it might have been so we went into this game with high hopes um, we were playing a really really strong fancy French team you had Michel Platini was on the top of his game then captain of the team they were a really fancy football team and you know we had a strong team ourselves but I wanted to go to the game I was uh, in secondary school at the time and the games in Lansdowne Road in those days were played in the afternoons uh, and they were generally always Wednesday afternoon because there was no lights in the stadium you know it was the it was even before the stadium was uh, was revamped even before it became the Aviva um, so you had the two individual stands on each side 
open-ended terraces at both ends it was brilliant you know it would be horrible today but in those days it was just brilliant it was like your mecca you just wanted to go and I really wanted to go to the game and getting tickets wasn't a problem you literally walked into um, shops like the sports shops used to sell the tickets and I remember me and my friends used to used to go into uh, I think it was a soccer shop in town and you just bought your tickets so it wasn't a problem but anyway the parents were having none of it no you have to go to school but of course, I was going to the game and I mitched. And uh, the experience of going to the game, the whole thing, or we, we got the bus. I lived in Crumlin, got the bus into town. We got the train out two or three stations to Lansdowne Road. And I'm not joking when I say your head was hanging out one window, your arm was hanging out another. The train was so packed, but it was just brilliant with all the excitement. So up to the game, we went and we had um, we tickets for the Lansdowne Road terrace, the South uh, Terrace. And... There was, I think, there was about fifty-five thousand people crammed at the stadium, and I think the, the the capacity was probably only about fifty in those days. Um, but there was just, you know, thousands, and and the terraces were crammed, and it was a real old-style terrace. And we were myself and my mates, we were right at the top of the terrace, right at the back, and there was sort of steps down then to 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 go out, and I'll explain the relevance of that in a minute. But at the game anyway, and we started off, we were really on on fire that day, and. Michael Robinson was making his debut and I think there was probably a little bit of um, suspicion maybe at the time about him because he was he qualified through the, the granny rule as they used to call it now and I don't mean to, mean to be disrespectful to Michael Robinson I'm not exactly sure what way he qualified but they called it the granny rule in those days I think they used to say if you had a pint of Guinness you qualified for Ireland you know but Michael Robinson anyway was playing and I suppose he had to win the fans over and he put in a magnificent shift he had a great game and um, I, I remember he created the first goal which was an OG I think he he made a run down the right and crossed it and so you had Stapleton, you had O'Leary, you had Brady, you had my lads as, say, as such playing. And, um, but he crossed it and it was an OG. And then did, I think France could have equalised. In the second half, we, we went 3-1 up anyway. And Brady was just pulling the strings in the middle of the park. Um, Stapleton got his goal. And David O'Leary actually uh, found himself in the box. It must have been from a, a broke down from a set play or something. And he sort of kept the ball alive and squared it. Uh, for Stapleton to, to score, we were two one up. Then later in the game, Robinson himself scored. We were three one up, and oh, the crowd was just going berserk! Like it was just magnificent the whole occasion. Um, but of course, the French, as they will, they came on strong late in the game. Platini himself equalised. Um, you had Seamus McDonough wasn't long in the team either and he was sort of making a name for himself too and he pulled off some great saves at the end of the game and yeah we won we held on to win 3-2 you know and it was just magnificent but I always remember getting out of the stadium then as I said we were at the back of the terraces right at the top so we were going down these stairs at the back which you think would be a sort of an easy way out but I'm not joking you my feet never touched the ground all the way down the crowd was so big in the stadium I was literally carried down those stairs in the crowd like the feet never touched the ground but it was just just magnificent and I'll never forget it you know um, unfortunately we did qualify for that World Cup um, we had high hopes that the French would I think the Dutch we thought that the Dutch would take points off France uh, in Holland or sorry in Paris maybe they were playing them but as, as Dutch teams often tend to do I think they self-imploded a bit there was some sort of uh, squabbling amongst them and anyway they didn't win so we, we didn't qualify but that's that just has such a such a special memory for me you know everything around it 
Mitchell from school, I suppose, for the first time. And the only time I have to add, I, I, after that, in fairness, the parents wrote a sick note for me and I went to all the games, but they, they knew I was going, you know, uh, hail, rain or snow. So they, they agreed to, to write the, the sick note for me. But yeah, going to the game, the train journey, the crowd, uh, just the whole exuberance. And of course, watching my heroes, really, you know, and, and Brady was just magnificent. That cultured left foot, he was brilliant. France qualified on goal difference. That's how, that's how they got through. We lost to Belgium with an 88-minute winner for Belgium, and they topped the group. But if we'd drawn that game, we would have gone through uh, instead of them. And um, yeah, yeah, so uh, perpetual heartbreak. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think in that Belgian game, we either had a goal disallowed or their goal was 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 um, one of those dodgy goals. I can't remember, but there was definitely something I know controversial around it. Your second pick, Sue, is another Irish legend. 1990 World Cup in Palermo, Ireland versus England, and it's uh, it's Paul McGrath. Paul McGrath, yeah, so now we're at our first World Cup um, and I know we were at the Euros in 88 and I didn't get to the Euros in 88 and watched it and I always remember watching that last game against Holland, half of it out in the back garden just willing us to win and unfortunately it didn't work out but was determined then, was going to go to the next uh, the next finals we got to so had left a late booking or whatever, I can't remember, but ended up in Malta anyway. So uh, the, the the World Cup was in Italy and, and I'm based in Malta, myself and, and friends. But there was obviously some package that we, we booked and we were um, commuted over on a catamaran for each of the games because the games were held in Sicily. So it probably wasn't too far from Malta. And that, again, was an experience in itself. But went over for the first game, the England game. And of course, there was a huge a huge police presence, you know, because obviously the English fans, you know, have a bad reputation and they can be a bit notorious. So the, the uh, there was a huge police presence and I think they were categorizing us all as troublemakers, you know. So again, one of the abiding memories on arriving in, in, um, in Palermo for that game was that the fan, like the police were really heavy handed. They were strict. They were separating all the fans and they actually let the, the English fans go towards the stadium, make their way towards the stadium first or get into the stadium. And they they effectively corralled all the Irish fans. And we were really like what you'd call in pens. You know, it was like being, you know, we we're in rogue squares and we were standing there for what seemed an eternity and probably close to certainly an hour. And then, of course, as the Irish fans do, they're always witty. Somebody started the sheep you know the sheep sound and then this went up around the whole thousands of Irish fans that were there and you look at the police looking at us didn't know what was going on you know but it was just a way I suppose a way of make, amusing ourselves and passing the, passing the time but there was no trouble of course as there never is so anyway we get to the stadium and um, all excited and you know, you have you have a huge, a big hit in English team, you know, and they're out for revenge after 1988. You've got Lineker, you've got Shilton, Goal, Beardsley, Waddle, all those guys. Um, and they came at us early on. And, and I suppose it was the reverse to 1988 where they scored first. So it's always chasing the game now. It's, not, it's the other way around. But again, we, we stuck at it. We played great. And Paul McGrath was immense, absolutely immense. Possibly not as immense as he was in the Giants Stadium in, in uh, four years later. I wasn't at that game. Obviously, watched it on TV. But um, yeah, he was still immense. Like he 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 just marshaled that defence and uh, midfield, and he he just stood out as a colossal in our team. And nothing was getting past him as it generally doesn't, you know. So eventually, 
thankfully um, we, we got the equaliser late on through Kevin Sheedy um, and, and we drew one all but I think the, the, the great thing was the other game went was a draw to Holland and Egypt I think I think actually that group was generally there was a lot of draws in that group um, I know I think our we had three draws actually we drew with Egypt, we had a really disappointing game there, and then we drew at Holland one all. And I think both teams knew they'd qualify with a draw, so we nearly walked through that one. But um, yeah, it's just that game. It's the whole excitement of playing the old enemy. You knew they were up for revenge. You know that the crack beforehand on the catamaran being 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 corralled in in in, in a crowd where this sound of Bah went up, you know, and yeah, just not losing the game. Um, but Paul McGrath for me just stood out, and what a magnificent player he has been for us over the years, you know. Your your next one uh, is also on my list. Uh, it's a World Cup qualifier Ireland against Holland. This one's Lansdowne Road. It's uh, towards the end of the old Lansdowne Road, and it's Roy Keane. Roy Keane, yeah, and sorry, just before I go on to that, just so I forgot to, to mention, I suppose, a little, um, the disappointment after that World Cup, as I said, I was, the 1990 World Cup, I was in Italy, went there on this package that took in their group game, so then obviously came home after that, and was in work, then the following week we're playing um, Romania in the penalty shootout, and I worked in um, Crumlin Hospital at the time, I was in administration, and anyway, my boss wouldn't, wouldn't, we didn't watch the game, like, no one had access to a TV, and I wasn't allowed to take time off, so I decided I'm taping this match i don't want to hear the score i'm going home i'm going to sit down in my in my wherever i lived in uh, Rathgar and i'm going to watch this game did all that managed to avoid the, the the score sat down to the game sat through whatever 120 minutes of it and the tape recorder stopped oh, <laughs> no. i had and there was no social media. There was no nothing in those days. I had no idea who won the game. I literally had to get in the car and go down to Rathmines, which is close by. And, of course, the streets were hot and everybody was singing. But, yeah, it was just a, a little um, little caveat, obviously, to that. But going back to the next one, yeah, Holland. We played Holland in um, again in Lansdowne Road uh, in t- 2001. And we win this game and it guarantees us the playoff, I think, uh, which was subsequently against Iran, I think. Um, and what an atmosphere at that game. And like we had a good, really good team out. Um, but of course, Holland, again, they're, you know, one of the big teams in, in, in European football. They had all these stars. They had Overmars. They had Van Nistelrooy. They had Clivert. They had all these players. But for me, I suppose, I was a little bit caught here now because being a big Arsenal fan and uh, obviously being an Ireland fan I was a little bit on the fence with Roy Keane you know I, I loved him playing for for Ireland absolutely loved him playing for Ireland but I absolutely hated him playing for United <laughs> because there was the real rivalry then like in the early noughties as you know late 90s early noughties Arsenal and United were the two teams that were generally winning the league and and usually when Arsenal didn't win it was because Keane was magnificent or you know all the different stuff that was happening in the tunnel at Highbury and between him and Vieira and all the rest and he was just magnificent in those days so yeah I, I had a love-hate relationship with Keane I have to say and but I was as up for this game for Ireland to win as anybody um I had to think about it twice I have to say when he cr- when he when he crashed into Mark Overmars in the first minute to to lay down the marker you know I was sort of yeah up like everybody else big cheer but in the back of my mind I was saying I hope he's not injured for Saturday um but yeah no look I think anyone that was at that game, you could see from the very beginning, as you said after that tackle Roy Keane just set down the marker he single handedly dragged dragged and led the team to the win that day he set up the goal for McIntyre I think um when when Kelly was sent off 
he stepped up, you know, he, he, he was the, nearly like our extra man, put himself about. He was just magnificent. And Holland just didn't know what to do. They really didn't know what to do. And, I mean, even after that tackle on Overmars, Overmars nearly disappeared out of the game after that. You know, he didn't fancy the he didn't fancy the physical side of it. Um, I suppose something to say a lot about the Arsenal team over the years. But, no, Keane was just magnificent. And, again, the recollection towards the end of that game um, was that Louis van Gaal was the, cap- was the manager. He threw on attacker after attacker and I think they had four strikers on the pitch at one point they'd Van Nistelrooy they'd Hasselbank they'd Clivert and somebody else um, but sure they weren't getting the ball to them because we were just preventing you know stopping it at the source as such so like it was ineffective really but we got the win and the stage I'm not joking I was in the West End for that one I was up in the posher seats now obviously uh, working on a few bob in my back pocket I didn't have to get the, the schoolboy tickets as they used to be called on the terraces but the stadium literally shook after that match when you know the cheering and the roar and I've never ever um, remember an atmosphere like it uh, before or since even with the in the current Aviva it was just rocking and literally rocking the West End I'm not joking it was literally rocking Um but yeah, what what a, what a match and and what a performance by Roy Keane and yeah, unfortunately things didn't work out too well in terms of him and us at the World Cup. But really, I don't really know. I, no, no one ever mentions that; it no. never comes up. <laughs> um, Do you know, it's funny. Like I was at the playoff game at home as well, and I, I remember saying this to my friend who used to go to the game. I remember saying this at, at, at that night, and Jane, I hope this is not this is not controversial. But looking at Roy Keane's demeanour after that game, I just said to my friend, he doesn't want to be here. There's something not right. You know, I just felt there was something not right in his own persona. And I look, I I don't know. Maybe he was just, I know he left the pitch pretty quick, and there's always those um, pictures shown of him and McCarthy sort of half shaking hands. But and maybe that was just it. But it just looked to me like he didn't want to be there you know so I, look I don't know but that I didn't do anything that happened but it was just a shame really you've picked another Arsenal one for your fourth one and it's Thierry Henry against Real Madrid yeah um, and Real Madrid again they were laden with the the star studded you know players Beckham was with them um, you had the Brazilian Ronaldo although he's probably coming towards the end of his career you had Zidane <laughs> Roberto Carlos um, Raul Ra- Raul, yeah, Robinho even, I think, might have been on the bench. Uh, Ramos, who's still playing, when you think of it, gosh, nearly 18 years later. He was obviously only a child then. Um, Guti, but what a team they had. And this was the second leg at, at Highbury. Um, they'd, we won the first leg away. Andre scored a magical goal. And this is probably coming towards the end of Andre's career with Arsenal. I think this, this ended up being his last season. So there was he was still on the top of his game, but there was speculation that he wasn't going to stay, you know, so that was in the back of the, back of the mind. But he, he got the, the goal away. So we, we won one nil at the Bernabeu. Um, now, I got tickets actually through Spanish friends. So I was in the Spanish end of the ground. And it was funny, not that I can understand Spanish, but they were translating latent for me but the Spanish were giving Beckham grief all through the game I think I don't know whether they hadn't taken to him or at that stage they didn't like him but there was all sorts of comments I think he was going through the period there where he used to change his hair every week and they were shouting things like you know because he was missing in the game you know is Beckham not back from the hairdressers yeah this type of stuff (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah they're giving awful grief but we we, it was nil all that game and it was a really really exciting nil all and 
in the second half, um, I think I was behind the goal where Arsenal were, were, were attacking. And um, the early on in the second half, the, we had a few really good chances. Henri um, got made Casillas make a couple of good saves. But towards the end as well of the game, when, when, when Madrid were really pressing and pressing, and I think the keeper had gone up for a corner probably late in the game. And... Uh, who was a layman was in goal, you know, he, he caught the ball and, and released Pires down the left and Pires clips the ball towards the goal and you've got Casillas. I just have this memory, Casillas, hair and back and Roberto Carlos and one of them anyway blocked, I think it was Carlos blocked it on the line and we we're like all, you know, excited thinking this is going to be it because, you know yourself, well, the, if they'd have scored it would have gone to extra time because while it was an away goal, we always had no, we also had an away goal but there's always that danger in the European games. One goal could mean you need to score two but yeah, it was just an exciting night and Andre was just magnificent, you know. I mean, he just, seemed to glide by players in, in his pomp you know uh, in, in when he was at, at the top of his game and it, the crowd loved him and never stopped singing his name and of course as I say I was in the wrong end of the ground so I couldn't really sing his name I'd have probably been lynched but <laughs> it was great to see and again the bittersweet the bittersweetness from that was we qualified for the final that year and I actually was at the final too I didn't put it in obviously as you'd have to be there because oh my god what a disappointment and I firmly believe they played Barcelona um, we played Barcelona in that game and I firmly believe if uh, Lehman hadn't been sent off after very early in the game maybe 12 minutes I think he took a player down outside the box um, I think Arsenal would have won that game definitely because we were we still scored one went one nil up even with ten players Saul Campbell scored and then it was late in the game before Barcelona did anything I always remember they brought Larson on and Larson had moved from Celtic and he wouldn't have been a first choice with them uh, but they brought him on and they also brought um, Samuel Eto'o on and that changed the game and Eto'o got the winner I can't remember who got the equaliser but it was such a disappointing moment I was with a friend of mine and we paid well over the odds for tickets and final whistle went and I said come on we're going and she said you must be joking if you think we're leaving before the celebration after paying whatever we paid for tickets so I had to sit there and endure the, the celebration but yeah what a magnificent game at Highbury and again that was probably one of the last big European nights before they moved to the Emirates uh, for the following season and yeah haven't hit those heights since unfortunately well they're on the way back the last one you've got is, is an amazing one to have been at um, and I think anybody who was there probably has it on their list it's the 2012 London Olympics Katie Taylor's gold medal fight absolutely um, and sorry the other games I mentioned you're probably having to search through the, the, uh, the search through everything to try and find any footage they were so old but uh, yeah Katie's fight I mean like I know Katie well Katie played <coughs> excuse me underage football for me for Ireland and what a magnificent player she was we all know that went on to play for the national team under Noel King and when she was playing under 19s for me she was still boxing um, and there wasn't the same publicity about her then she was still winning world titles and European titles but there was hardly anything about it you know unfortunately um, and I used to give her time off like from our training or from our camp so she could uh, do her training with her dad and her dad often came into the team hotel and set up in the room and they were doing whatever they were doing the training and the sparring and that was the, the payoff or the, the balance off to have Katie playing for us you know and it was well worth it um, she was still the best player we had but obviously that was before then she she had to make her choice so when 
you know, this Olympics was obviously, was always something she wanted. She always wanted to win that Olympic gold medal. She always spoke about it. And as soon as the Olympics were held and uh, were announced as London and women's boxing was announced, as soon as the tickets went on sale, I bought tickets for the final. I just knew she'd be there. I, I really did knew she'd be there. So anyway, over we went. I also had tickets the same night for the, the, the women's football final, which was at Wembley about two hours later, would you believe? So it was a real hair, hair and scare across London after Katie's fight. But I, I missed half the football, which didn't matter. But yeah, um, going to the stadium, I remember I met so many people that I knew, like obviously half of Ireland, I think, had come over. Um, it was around down in the west end of London or the, the east end of London, I think, around where the Olympic Stadium was. It was held down there and queuing to go in. As I say, it was a great day. It was loads of people around. Everyone was dressed in green, white and orange. Just the excitement. Everyone, you know, no one could see Anton but Katie winning. Um, it were into the stadium and just from the very beginning, the noise and the singing and the roaring and then the whole spectacle, you know, Katie coming out with her dad in her corner in those days. And the fight itself was such a fantastic fight. And I think in one of the rounds, I, I can't remember the score, um, but I, I know, I think she either lost one of the rounds or she looked like she was in trouble and she had to put in a great performance in the last round and that she did and everyone just roared her on and to see her drop to her, her knees you know and I, I still get choked up thinking about it it's one of those really exciting you know fantastic moments for Ireland um, and for Katie obviously in her family but to see her you know drop to her knees and the, the just the sheer delight and relief on her face and her dad and everyone in her corner. I mean, it was no more than she deserved, you know, and it was just fantastic to see. And she stayed out. Gosh, she was out in the ring going around the crowd for ages afterwards, like just celebrating. Everyone was singing and, you know, taking pictures and the lot. And as I say, probably it was probably about an hour after the, the fight was finished before I actually left and ran across London. And I I'd, I'd bumped into another guy here from here who was doing the same. So we were hairing along to get into to Wembley for the women's uh, football final but that didn't matter you know the most important thing was the fight and I think you know it was no more than she deserved and it was just fantastic uh, to see her win that after all like knowing all she'd done all the sacrifices she'd made all she'd been through in her life and it was so well deserved and like the, the boxer she was fighting was a good fighter too was it Akcheva or That's something Gavi, yeah. Mm. Gavi, yeah. a very good fighter but I think that medal was Katie's and you know Come hell or high water, you know, the other boxer was going to really have to do something very, very special to, to take it from her, you know. I think that's just one of those standout moments. And for sure, you had to be there. I think half of Ireland probably felt they were there, you know, watching it on TV and on live screens and Bray, etc. But 100%. yeah, that's, that's definitely there up, up with my one of my top uh, moments. So, Unfortunately, the rest are football. I, I do know. watch they were... I've not been... <laughs> that's a great list Sue thanks a million you've been a, a brilliant episode if you had to be there cheers no problem take care thanks lads you're so unexpected it's one of those you had to be there moments you had to be there it subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life you had to be there on tomorrow's show Alan Quinlan Jess Kelly Daniel Harris Friday Fire Pit and much more OTB AM with Gillette Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.